thousand dollars was you think if you kill them all it will go away it won't hey everybody welcome back to another episode of dead and married i'm travis and i'm ashley and this week for your enjoyment we're going to be covering halloween 5 the revenge of michael myers the 1989 <laughs> masterpiece is this really their pleasure you think it, it's neither of those things it's neither <laughs> their pleasure or a masterpiece although some people do like it some do this will probably be the first one then the first of the movies that we've covered that i am less kind to yeah so since you informed me that last week i bored everyone to bloody tears with <laughs> financial information <laughs> Uh, I'm going to skip all that and just tell you that Halloween 5 is the worst financial performing uh, Halloween entry in the franchise. It's the worst. <laughs> like, even Busta Rhymes did better than this one. Wow. That's really saying something. Yeah. And it gets worse. <laughs> Are you ready? It's opening box office the first weekend. You know what movie it lost to? What? Look Who's Talking. Oh. It was number two to Look Who's Talking. Damn. Yeah. I think I'd even still watch Halloween 5 over that. <laughs> I don't know. That one does have John Travolta in it. And he's insane. He's entertaining. He's it's kinda like watching Nick Cage do Nick Cage stuff. So I, I would know. argue that Nick Cage is better than John Travolta. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know about that. I do. Con Air, he is better there. But John Travolta did do Saturday Night Fever. Is that really the one we're gonna use as an example? It's the only one I could think of. <laughs> Like, you could have said Pulp Fiction. <laughs> that is not the first thing that he's done that popped into my head. That's really sad. It kind of is. I would say that that's probably the best movie he's ever made, and that's yeah, about it. It could be. <laughs> so this film actually had one of the lowest international theatrical distributions of the series. They just didn't send it out there. And there were a lot of countries that it was just straight to video. So even they knew it was trash. Wow. Sorry, I shouldn't say that before the spoiler alert, should I? <laughs> So, anyway, so as far as the box office for 1989, it was up against Batman, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Little Mermaid. It, basically, any year that they've kicked out of Halloween where you had a big action movie, they had trouble. So, except for the first one. The first one kicked ass. But this one lost in the box office to Friday the 13th Part uh, 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. Mm -hmm. It lost to Kickboxer. It lost to Shocker. Kickboxer's pretty good, though. Nightmare on Elm Street Dream Child did better than it did. Well, and okay. And so did Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, <laughs> which is good because that one really is good. I like that movie. Well, I would That's say... That's my childhood right there. I would say that, that um, Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, those two entries are also considered to be some of the worst in their series. Not to me, personally. I have a soft spot for Jason Takes Manhattan, and I also actually really like The Dream Child. That was like one of the first nightmares I ever saw, and so I've got a lot of nostalgia for it. Um, there are still things, scenes in that movie that scared me when I was a kid, So I, but I do know that there are a lot of people that widely say that those movies suck so yeah i don't know honestly i'm not as familiar with the uh not around elm street series at all mm -hmm. so i you say the dream child and i really i'd have to well then i it. know what we're doing I, next i don't know which one you're talking about there <laughs> as far as friday the 13th goes there was a time when i would say that jason was my favorite i'm struggling with that now this has been a pretty wild journey so this far because I would say... An interesting thing for me. I would say that there are more entries in the Friday the 13th series that are actually good than there are in the Halloween series. Like, the Halloween series is pretty... You want to be a, honest with it's you? It's a mixed bag. 
the more I read about Halloween and the challenges that this franchise has had, the more I just feel bad for Michael Myers. <laughs> <laughs> He had so much potential, and then so many people just went in there and fucked him up. It gives you a new appreciation, though, for what the crew has to go through to get a movie even made, though. So once, I feel like once you know all of those things, it gives you a new appreciation for filmmaking, and yeah, this is not the best example of that, but... This is not even a good example. <laughs> But boy, have I got some interesting details for you when we get into this. Oh, joy. (laughs) So I'm not the only one that struggles with this movie. Critically. Oh, hell no. I struggle with this movie. Critically, it's not great. Yeah. It's a 5.1 out of 10 on IMDb. Metacritic gives it a 28. Mm -hmm. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 12. Oh, wow. At least it's not a single digit. (laughs) We've seen some that were single digits. So some of the reviews, Chris Stuckman from Mm ChrisStuckman.com, this was just last year, wrote that this was the beginning of the end for the Halloween franchise. Stephen Holden with the New York Times uh, says that it's a bit more refined in its details than the conventional horror movie. That's the best review that I found. Mm -hmm. Although, to be honest, so many of them were bad. I didn't look for very long. Okay, well, (laughs) I'll I'll just go ahead and tell you what my main problem is with this, okay? So fans of the Halloween series know how it was when John Carpenter started out. He had like no money at all to make that movie. Like change practically when you think of how much money it takes to make something like something in the MCU. John Carpenter had nothing to work with and he still managed to give one of the best movies to horror that we've ever had. Like I said, and I think I've mentioned this a couple of times already, Halloween's not my favorite, but goddamn is it good. It's such a good fucking movie. The fact that the first one was so good is what makes the rest of them so hard to take. He laid such a good foundation for this franchise, Mm -hmm. and then they just crapped it up. Well, well, see, that's what I was about to go into, is that with less resources, he made the best possible movie he could make that has stood the test of time for 40 years. And then by the time you get to five, this director, (laughs) he just basically shit all over it. He did not care anything about this mythos or the people going to watch it. He was just like, it almost seems like he was just there for the oh, paycheck. Oh, don't get too far ahead. I'm going to tell you all about it. <laughs> tell you all about it. Anyway, that that's that's the biggest thing I struggle with in this movie because when you go to part four, Dwight H. Little, he made a good movie. Sure, it's not anything compared to the first one, but he took the time along with Ellen B. McElroy and they made a good movie. They, they cared and they worked really hard and they tried. And by the time you get to this guy, and I can't even fucking say his name right yeah he basically didn't care at all and yeah we'll get into it it shows that but so a couple more of these reviews and this is probably the one i like the most Uh, richard harrington with the washington post said that this is a prime example of the principle of diminishing reruns i like that (laughs) uh let's see michael wilmington with the la times said this is the same infinitely repeated plot of halloween's one two and four with the same unkillable boogeyman wreaking the same programmed havoc and donald pleasance as the same distraught psychiatrist repeating the same dire warnings to no avail uh i that is one thing i will disagree with i think that donald pleasance or dr loomis he cranked his performance up to an 11 on this one (laughs) i don't know that i cared for his performance in this one i think it was too over the top but i think he was directed to do it that way i think i think a lot of his actions were out of character yes so anyway this this movie we're going to continue to call it a movie (laughs) 
was directed by Dominique Othenin Gerard. Yeah. So, according to Dread Central, that while Jeff Burr, who did Leatherface, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, was originally in talks to helm this project, his involvement ended when Deborah Hill recommended the French-Swiss filmmaker uh, Gerard for the gig. Oh, Deborah. So it's her fault. (laughs) It is her fault. And Gerard... Because I'm not going to say his whole name every time. It's too much. <laughs> Gerard. Uh, in an interview, he actually they asked him uh, with Halloween, HalloweenMovies.com how he got the job. And he said that he met Deborah Hill at Sundance Film Festival. And she asked if he was interested in meeting a cod. And then a week later, and these are his words, a week later, well prepared. Having watched all the Halloween, Friday the 13th, and Nightmare on Elm Street films, I met with Mr. Akat. How do you prepare to do a Halloween movie by watching Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street? I guess I can kind of see that where you may not want to just stick with one franchise. You kind of want to get a sense for slashers in general. So I can kind of see that you can compare between the three franchises But to Michael see. Myers is neither of those. No. Not even close. No, he's not. But I think that was the point is you wanted to see what works for one franchise and what doesn't and the same with the others probably if I had to guess but if he spent more time studying those than he did studying the Halloween movies that came before specifically one and maybe even two that might explain some of his choices so in order to help explain just how bad Halloween 5 really is I'm gonna have several quotes that come directly from him in interviews so according to him that after he made an analysis of the market of horror film and their sequels and an analysis of the script that he received from Akkad he says I asked him if he intended to continue with the following installments of the Halloween films. He laughed and asked who I was to ask such a question. I then said, so, if you do, may I do what I think will allow you to continue with the privileged niche that you have on the market? He nodded. I took the script they gave me and threw it in the trash in front of them. I heard about that. That's some balls for sure. And then Akkad got what he paid for. (laughs) <laughs> so anyway it didn't start off good at all yeah um so as far as writing credits go you got john carpenter and deborah hill right at the top because they create characters to be fair though you have when you have somebody who is a super fan of the series even and knows all of the myth- mythos inside and out they can still make a bad series if, if i mean you can talk to like two or three people out of five and they'll tell you that rob zombie ruined those movies even though he loved those movies so i i don't know i just think anybody can fuck it up whether they truly appreciate appreciate the material or not I would agree with that. So the other writers on this project were Michael Jacobs, Gerard is, is given a writing credit, and Shem Bitterman. Now, Shem Bitterman wrote the first screenplay for this film, and in his idea, Jamie Lloyd and Michael Myers were going to be dual antagonists. She was going to be a teenager going on a killing spree of her own with Myers attempting to kill her because she was interfering with his own killing spree. And yeah. Rachel was going to be caught in the middle. A cod did not like the screenplay, feeling that it, ha- it was more of a parody of the series mm-hmm. than an actual installment. And since he'd already promised Daniel Harris that she'd be allowed to return as Jamie, they kicked it. No no go on that script. In an interview with Daniel Harris, she even said that the, ha- the way Halloween 4 ended, I thought I was going to be the killer. I thought it would have been fun to come back as the killer or Michael's sidekick. So even she had that idea. I just don't... I'm glad they didn't go that route. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that at all. I, too, have heard that whole thing where they they were clearly trying to set Jamie up to be the next killer. Unfortunately, you know, we horror fans tend to be purists. And if we had gotten rid of Michael in favor of Jamie Lloyd being our next killer, I don't think it would have taken. So... You saw how well it worked out with Part 3. Yeah. So... 
If they had done that, done that kind of change, then that would have been a little more in keeping with John Carpenter's original vision where everyone's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Maybe they share the name, but it's more of an anthology. Mm -hmm. It would have been interesting to have a teenage girl as the the killer. It would be different. Maybe not interesting, but it would be different. They haven't done another one of those. They sure as hell hadn't done one then. I'm not saying it would have been better. I don't know how it would have been better than what we got, (laughs) but I don't think it could have been worse than what we got. (laughs) Like every Halloween film, this thing had major problems. Apparently, Donald Pleasance had disagreements with a and Gerard agreeing that Jamie should have been portrayed as all evil after she stabbed her stepmother. Akkad didn't like that. He thought fans wanted to see more Michael Myers and to that point he was probably correct. But that's interesting because when asked what it was like working with Pleasance, Gerard said he was remarkably easy to work with. I had been warned by Mustafa about his difficult actor's side which indicates that Akkad and Pleasance had butted heads a little bit. Mm -hmm. But Donald was wonderful with me. We enjoyed shooting together and he never manifested controversies toward me or the part to play. Strange. Because that's, I feel like that's the complete opposite of what I've heard. Yeah. But now that's not, those are not Pleasance's words. Those are Gerard's words. So eventually, um, I guess after he threw the script in the trash, he asked Akkad if he could bring his own writer in. He brought in Robert Harders. And he pitched a treatment where basically he was just going to rip off Frankenstein. In his version... Michael falls down the mine shaft, gets tangled up in some cables, and in a very dramatic storm, he was going to get struck by lightning and brought back to life. Which is funny, because three years prior to this, that's exactly how they brought Jason back. Yeah, and, and I would say arguably the superior movie. Yeah, Jason <laughs> Lives, 1986. That's how Tommy Jarvis fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by sticking a lightning rod in Jason. So, they rejected that script too, and the final result was that it was essentially rewritten from scratch by Michael Jacobs and Gerard. Although Bitterman is still credited uh, due to a contract. So, yeah. I saw the term rushed used a lot when they talk about the the issues with production. And uh, between Gerard and the producers over topics like blood use. And it's funny because in an article that appeared in the October 89 issue of Fangoria, Gerard claimed that the film's ending was not scripted, meaning they haven't even finished writing it yet. But Pleasance told him in the same article that the film would contain his death the death of Dr. Loomis. Mm-hmm. So not only was the script not done, they weren't even on the same page. Yeah. So I think that's a testament to how poorly uh, he ran this. Yeah. Uh, and I've got another one where they ask him, what part of the script did you write? And he his response was that in Halloween 4, Jamie saw herself in the position of stabbing her mom. And so he felt that he needed to give her the re- uh, possibility to redeem herself. So he wanted her to have a handicap in some way, which is the reason she couldn't speak. And that was going to be a difficulty that he thought that she would have to overcome. And then he gave her the ability to sense the activity of Michael to give her a tool to help out the hunt for Michael Myers. And then he says, I basically recuperated the elements still unresolved from H4 and designed the new characters with their plot. I disciplined myself to stay in the genre created by the first Halloween. I, that's complete bullshit. If, he, if he's saying stay within the genre, he, did he stay within the horror genre? Yes. Within Halloween? Not so much. Other than the mask. So... What do you think about it? How'd you like that script? It's got its problems. <laughs> there, I found more in this movie to not like than like. The, I've, I've heard people go as far as to say that they would never watch this movie again. I'm not in that camp. Um, if I'm going to do a marathon, of course I'm going to include part five. Like I said, this movie was part of my childhood. So I definitely include it every time I'm going to watch these films. But I find myself, whenever I watch it, it's definitely the one that makes me angry. Like, if I'm going to pretend one of these films doesn't exist, it that honor usually goes to Resurrection. Um, and not this one. But... It still is a movie that makes me upset as I go through watching it. And not like, you know, throw the remote at the TV, you know, go shave the kids' heads upset, but... (laughs) 
but you know, it's just it's just really unfortunate that this movie couldn't come together better than it did. And it's all because these movies, I mean, in a sense, were basically filmed back to back. They they rushed them so much that the proper care was not given to them. Well, and Daniel Harris said she had what was it her eleventh birthday on the set of four and her twelfth birthday on the set of five yeah. or something like that. Maybe it was ten and eleven or nine and ten or something. But yeah, they were they were so close together that her birthday happened during filming on both occasions. Okay, so I'm going to run through the cast real quick because you're already giving me the you're talking too much eye roll. So, <laughs> returning cast, Donald Pleasance plays Dr. Loomis, Daniel Harris plays Jamie, Ellie Cornell returns, though briefly, as Rachel. Bostar reprises his role as Sheriff Ben Meeker. That's really about it. Uh, we've got new characters. Jeffrey Landman plays Billy. Tamara Glenn as Samantha Thomas. Jonathan Chapin, who is mercifully not in this movie a whole lot, plays Mikey, who is Tina's love interest. Matthew Walker plays Spitz. Wendy Foxworth is Tina Williams. And that's really it. I guess we can introduce the rest of them as we go. Again, it was produced by Mustafa Akkad, Rick Nathanson, and Ramsey Thomas. Music by Alan Howarth again. Yeah. Which is good. Um, there's a few, there's a few beats in there I don't agree with, but we'll get to that. Yeah. (laughs) So, I know you don't like the the, the big details. Makeup department in this movie was, uh, K, what do you call, K&B? KBN? K, K and Robert B. Kurtzman, Howard Berger, and Greg Nicotero. There K you go. And B. K and B. I always get those mixed up. <laughs> Kurtzman, Berger, Nicotero, which is like your makeup effects dream team. Yes. So there you go. There's the cast. Well, I guess that pretty much wraps up sort of our intro. Let's do the spoiler warning and get rowing. And now it's time for your obligatory spoiler warning. We don't just spoil movies here. They are spoiled rotten. So listen at your own risk or turn back now. You know what they can do if they can't take a job? We open on a pumpkin getting massacred, basically. I've never seen a pumpkin carved like that. <laughs> like, somebody was angry. Well, they were probably pissed because this is the last time you get to see a pumpkin in the opening for Halloween, the opening credits, until oh, the yeah. remake, or until 2018. That's right. We also get our previously on Halloween. Oh my God. <laughs> beginning here. And we, in something I can appreciate here is the beginning that they basically pick up where they left off in The Return of Michael Myers with Rachel Carruthers, once again portrayed by Ellie Cornell, her highway battle with Michael Myers. Only this time when Michael gets mowed down by the Haddonfield PD and falls down the well, which is what it was pretty much what it looked like and kind of what we were told it was. Well, because they just showed you him falling like, and then it caved in on him. Or whatever. Yeah. This one, you actually, he falls in and it's clarified that it's a mine shaft. Yeah. So I, I guess that's why in part four, I always thought that was a mine shaft too. Well, and, and you know, this is the second film since Halloween 2 for them to rewrite the ending of the movie before. Yeah. It's becoming a habit with these people. And this time they throw a stick of, we're not a stick, like a bundle of dynamite after him. And he crawls down and he's making his way through the lazy river. <laughs> and all he needed was a beer in his hand while our Halloween theme is playing. So did you notice that you could see his life jacket? Yes. Under the suit? Yes, I did. <laughs> it looks like he had Spongebob tucked into his shirt. <laughs> and the other thing that I noticed is that when, they, when the title card comes up and it says uh, Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, there's no 5. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, which is interesting because they did it in the fifth installment of uh, the two other franchises as well. Uh-huh. And Friday the 13th, Part 5, New Beginning, the Part V uh-huh. is missing 
missing. And in the Dream Child, the number five is missing. So in the fifth entry to all to both all of the big three, they fucked up the title card on their intro. Huh. So Michael manages to get up to his feet and make his way to a lone shack in the woods inhabited by an old man and his bird. The old man, he hears something, something going on. And after finding out that there's no one around, we see Michael jumping from behind to attack, but then he suddenly collapses and passes out. Well, so the part of the problem with this whole sequence here is that this is not the original opening. The mm-hmm. original opening was supposed to feature a character named Dr. Death, which was like this skinny little guy right. who was all into voodoo and into the occult and stuff like that. And Akkad hated it. He let Gerard film it, but he didn't like it. And it was it's confirmed by both Dominique and Don Shanks that plays Michael Myers in this one, mm-hmm. that they reshot it without Gerard there. While he was off filming something else, Akkad had another crew come in and reshoot this beginning. <laughs> Yeah, talk about some underhanded shit. We get a card the next day stating that it's Halloween Eve one year later and are taken to the Haddonfield Children's Clinic where we see Jamie Lloyd once again portrayed by Daniel Harris lying asleep seemingly having a nightmare. While hooked up to monitors, she is seen dreaming of the night. She attacked her foster mother and it's heavily implied that she acted against her will this time. She awakens in terror screaming, but what we don't hear are her actual screams because the trauma of what she went through has rendered her mute. We see a nurse come in to comfort her, but Jamie is just, she's a mess, obviously. Just then, like in tandem, Michael awakens and we see Jamie start to mimic his actions. Yeah, because you like, see her hand twitch and then his hand twitches mm-hmm. and it kind of goes back and forth. Mm-hmm. And in the scenes where it's flashing back and forth between her and Michael and even the part you're going to talk about next, you can see the first, the original cut of the opening mm-hmm. with the, all the occult crap in the cave. When they edited it, they just get really sloppy or they just cherry picked. The problem is, is that the old man shack is very dim. It's very darkly lit. And then you see it cut with sections where there's like cobwebs and shit hanging and books and skulls and candles in the background. And it's clearly a different set. Strange. I didn't notice that. Yeah. And the mask. The mask is different in this one. They're different in all of them, aren't they? Well, <laughs> they are, but they were going to originally use the same one that Wilbur wore in four, but it didn't fit. Uh-huh. So they went and made a whole new one. And of course, uh, Gerard had all kinds of input on what he thought that it should be. He wanted it longer, a longer face with slicker hair and thicker rubber with different shaped eye holes. Uh, they had it held together with Velcro, so the expression is a little bit different on it. And just like every other mask outside of the first two movies, it, the fans hated it. So. Right. We also see a mysterious tattoo now on the shape's wrists, seemingly of a thorn symbol. If they'd have gone with the original, in the original entrant opening to this movie, apparently it shows Dr. Death putting that mark on him, which would have at least given us some explanation as to where the hell it came from. True. As an unmasked Michael, this time portrayed by Don Shanks rises up from his makeshift bed unbeknownst to the old man Jamie begins to pull out a small chalkboard and write he's coming for me Michael grabs his mask as Jamie mimics the action and he kills the old hermit he kills him with the stalactite that's one of the scenes they didn't cut so with Dr. Death he was supposed to throw him on the altar Mm -hmm. and stab him in the chest with a pointy rock and it shows him break the old man's neck and then it shows him stabbing Dr. Death with with the pointy rock even though you don't get to see his face Jamie then collapses in bed starting to convulse and is unable to breathe. And the nurse, heartbreakingly, in my opinion, yells for the doctor and a gurney. Several
several doctors arrive loading Jamie onto a gurney, giving her oxygen, and head off for the ER. They get her in the operating room, and as they begin to perform an emergency tracheotomy, Dr. Sam Loomis, once again portrayed by horror legend Donald Pleasance, comes in out of nowhere and yells at the doctor to stop. As they argue about her state, Jamie suddenly stabilizes, and Dr. Loomis muses that she has something to tell us. So, I got two questions here. The first one is that you see them fold the gurney down and carry her downstairs. It's a children's hospital that doesn't have a damn elevator. All those beds upstairs. All these sick kids, no elevator. It's just an older building. It looks like an older building. Yeah, but still. There's plenty of old hospitals that have those weird, like, grates that you have to close and they'll cut your fingers off, if you, <laughs> you know? And the next one is, what is Loomis's actual role? What's his actual role in this film? Like, where is he a doctor at? I guess that's the question, because he runs around giving orders just like this, telling him to stop, and the doctor actually does stop. Where is he still a doctor? The only thing that I could rationalize in my head is that since he's a psychiatrist, maybe Jamie's foster parents appointed him to act as her psychiatrist. That's could all be, I could come up with. But he's still not a medical doctor, and I think that's the part I had an issue with, is that he may be a psychiatrist, but psychiatrists don't get to give a surgeon medical advice on whether or not to right. do a tracheotomy. Right. That just that, that part didn't make sense at all. Yeah, it seems like the staff would have removed him from the room and carried on. Yeah, you would it, think so. And in that time, they pro- she they probably would have seen her stabilized then, but yeah. I don't know. It's it's just one of those things where I think the direction that Donald Pleasance received, and it takes something away from his performance in this, And I think. I, I would he's say... he's a great actor. Yeah, I would say he was definitely underutilized in this film. They didn't give him enough to do, but as we've heard in several documents, documentaries up to this point, he also did get to a point where he couldn't do too much. Like, they'd have him for so many hours on the set, but then he would get very tired and he would have to be done for the day. Well, they filmed all of his scenes for this movie, like, in two weeks. Mm-hmm. For that very reason. They wanted to get him in, get his work done, and get him gone. So, they did talk about several occasions where stamina was an issue. Yeah. And he would get tired very easily. Not that he wouldn't keep going, just that he would, you could tell he was physically exhausted. Yeah. So, they filmed in short bursts and tried to get all the scenes that included uh, Dr. Loomis out of the way within the first two, three weeks of filming. And then when he left, he, he left Daniel Harris's trailer. Yeah, I, that was, <laughs> I thought that was really cool. The next day, Dr. Loomis goes to check on Jamie, and we see Rachel asleep with Jamie, or, or not asleep with her. She's, she's sitting next to Jamie's bed, and she has her head laying down on Jamie's bed. And as Jamie plays with her hair, but is awakened by Dr. Loomis leaving the room. They share a sweet moment briefly until... Ugh. They are interrupted by obnoxious banging and shouting, Wake up! This is a flamboyant girl we've never met before with a big Doberman that Jamie is excited about and mouths the name Max. The girl named Tina, appearing to be a friend of Rachel's, climbs in through the window with Max, even though Rachel's warning that dogs aren't allowed inside. As Jamie and Tina hug, Jamie starts searching Tina, trying to look for something, and mutely asks what she's brought for her. To which Rachel pulls out a purple princess Halloween costume. Correct me if I'm wrong, but on the movie cover, isn't she wearing the clown costume again? Yes. And she never wears a clown costume in this movie? No. She's a princess. Yes. Okay. Which, for me, one thing I got was, okay, you couldn't quite, I mean, maybe you could quite understand why she didn't want to dress up in part four, but you would think by part five, she would absolutely have fuck all to do with Halloween. I mean, am I right? You would think (laughs) that she would have pretty well written it off. I just, this is one of those little things that it feels like they just didn't put a lot of effort into it. Yeah. You know, like, get your box art right. Damn. (laughs) Well, I mean, didn't they do the same thing for Halloween four where they had the cover? They used a production still from Halloween two? And that's no. the mask look different. No, part one. They used the same cover from, from part, part one. one. Yeah. Yeah. So people were expecting a good mask and they got Play-Doh. <laughs> 
So while Rachel's pulling out this uh, Halloween costume, we get some very fucking annoying fanfare performed by Tina. And hearing the commotion of this, Dr. Loomis enters concerned. And this is where, I mean, annoying singing aside, this is where I first become really annoyed with Tina because he comes in, he's obviously worried about what's going on. And she's basically doing like... (laughs) She's being as obnoxious as possible. Our own children do us where... Where she's basically just being as disrespectful as she possibly can. Yeah. And when the first time I saw this, I thought, thank God, at least they'll kill her first. <laughs> And they don't. (laughs) But they don't. But she's like, I mean, he's obviously looking at him like there's a dog in here. And yes, it's sad for Jamie because it did brighten up her day. So I I get it. I get uh, the sentiment. But I'm going to sound really, really puritanical here for a second. But rules is rules, okay? (laughs) You don't take, you don't take dogs into Walmart and you don't take dogs into a hospital, okay? And I love dogs. It's just a complete lack of respect. What about the other kids that are there? Yeah. I mean, people can be allergic to dogs too, not just cats. (laughs) She just didn't give a shit. And, okay, yeah, so that I could forgive, but it was the fact that when he came in and kind of looked at them like, what's going on? Tina's just doing that stupid teenager thing where she starts laughing at him like, ha, 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 ha. And that was the first time I went, you're a bitch. Yeah, pull your gun on her, Loomis. (laughs) She leaves the room, though. Rachel then tells Jamie that she'll see her in a couple of days and that their parents send their love and hugs her goodbye. So... I guess we establish that uh, parents are going on, going away for the weekend for Halloween, which understandably. Well, they're gone already. Yeah. And they've convinced Rachel to go with them. I wouldn't want to be in fucking Haddonfield on Halloween either, if it's me, but. Well, I mean, if you want to survive Michael Myers, just don't be in Haddonfield on (laughs) Halloween. Right. Like, he's the easiest killer to get away from. (laughs) Just don't be in Illinois. Right. Just then, a brick comes flying through Jamie's window, and we hear a car speed off. Loomis opens a note attached to it that reads the evil child must die with must being underlined so first off okay calm down and second how is this jamie's fault who threw it we don't we never find out well she doesn't get that hate through the rest of the movie no this is a completely isolated incident yeah so so rachel asked loomis exactly that as she's leaving the clinic like when are they gonna realize that this isn't her fault she's just a little girl to which loomis replies they know that michael's her uncle that she attacked her stepmother and i'm gonna interject here right quick stepmother foster mother wasn't it? like yeah they just completely ignored that altogether like she's not related to <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could see how she would become like a mother to her after time, but I just thought it was strange that the word stepmother was used and stepsister. So yeah. just, sorry, strange. I know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and because she attacked her foster mother, that is exactly why they fear her, especially on Halloween. Rachel then begins to express guilt about her leaving, but Loomis assures her that everything will be fine. She can phone to check in. It's not a big deal. So before we go any further into the movie, let's just go ahead and clarify something. Okay. In another interview, before before you give me the eye roll. <laughs> With Gerard, he was asked, did you feel a lot of pressure to direct Halloween 5 considering the success of Halloween 4? And his response was, not at all. I am a storyteller and once the script was accepted, my mission was to make the best suspense horror film I could within the limit of time and budget. I concentrated on the work and let go of the outside perception of how should such a sequel look like. Those are his words, not mine. In order to accumulate more money than the precedent, precedent sequel, I simply had to remain within the genre and mostly make the film work. Who does he think he is, Dave? David Lynch? David Lynch. 
Lynch can make whatever the fuck movie well, he wants to. This guy didn't have that credit yet. What that statement tells me is that he gave fuck all about what came exactly. before. He just wanted to make a little money and go. And that was my point. That has to be earned. You have to earn that, you know, that level of clout. He did not have that at this point. Yeah. So the point being is that there's going to be a lot of stuff that we're going to talk about in here where it just doesn't make sense. And that's why. Because he didn't care. Yeah. And I think that's pathetic that they would hand over the reins to this franchise to somebody that didn't give a shit. When you're... Even if only for one entry. I don't know what his background looked like before then, but it just seems like if you're going to be a first-timer taking over a franchise as beloved as this one, I would think public opinion would matter to some degree. I mean... He didn't care. The customer's always right, I guess. He he didn't care. (laughs) Like, it seems like you would, that would, that should be, as your filmmaker, your number one goal is try to create something that the fans are going to like. Right. But that's not really what he was after. I mean, for instance, think about how we're all in it, you know, the hype surrounding Halloween Kills has come to such a fever pitch because we're so excited because David Gordon Green took a beloved franchise and then he acted like he fucking cared, you know, never mind all the nods to the original series. You could tell that he made this with thinking, what would I want to see, you know, as a fan? And this guy obviously could not care less. Well, and I feel like the overall content in in that version, I I believe it to be... A continuation of the very first movie. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? It, it's a realistic transition. It, not to say that it doesn't have some holes, because it does have some issues. Every movie has some issues. I believe that it's the sequel to the first movie. Do you right. know what I mean? With the way Jamie Lee Curtis acts and the way her daughter is and all these other things, they sell it. Right. You know? And I think so far, mostly the complaint for 2018's version is that there was too much humor in it. But I don't mind the humor. I thought it would ha- was handled well and using, used sparingly. And to To me, it's actually more realistic. You know, we go through everyday life cracking jokes and saying vulgar things. I mean, who doesn't do that? I mean, I don't say I've got peanut butter on my penis every day, but... (laughs) I didn't have an issue with the humor. I had an issue with the humor in this one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I feel like it was used well enough. I mean, people joke. It's real life. Yeah. It is. People say dumb shit when they're making breakfast. And why wouldn't he talk about peanut butter on his penis? (laughs) Because nothing's happened yet. There's no reason for him to be afraid. Exactly. This is just life for them. Yeah. You know? And spoilers, the kid's sitting there clipping his toenails on the couch. <laughs> I love that part. Yeah, he's talking shit. Why would he clipping my nasty ass toenails? Why wouldn't I love he be talking shit? Nothing's happening. <laughs> It's just, a, it's every day. Yeah. I think people get too tied up in that, but anyway. Right. There's too much doom and gloom in the world already. A little humor never hurt anybody. I appreciate the humor. And especially if it's like gallows humor. Like, maybe I'm sick, but yeah. When it's really dark humor in a movie like that, I, yeah. I kind of dig it. Yeah. We cut to Rachel and Tina arriving at the Carruthers house as Rachel again voices her worry. Tina tries to convince her to go to, a, they call the tower, tower farm party, I guess, that they do every year. And Rachel says she thinks she'll think about it. It and Tina then leaves. And speaking of leaves. Yeah. So this is one of the things that really stood out to me. In, well, shit, all of them, including three that didn't have Michael Myers in it, they made an effort to make it look like Halloween, even though right. they're going for a Halloween release. So that means you shoot it before the fall. You're going to be shooting it in spring or summer. So everything is going to be green. But they made an effort to make it look like right. it was October. Mm-hmm. They gave fuck all about what it looked like in this movie. Right. You don't hardly see any Halloween decorations. Mm-hmm. And you could make the argument that, well, Haddonfield's given up on Halloween and that's the reason you don't see it. But in every other movie... It ain't part six yet. I know. <laughs> but in... What one? You get to see Halloween Day, and they were going all out. Yeah. Halloween Four, they went all out. And this one, they're just there's nothing. Like you see a pumpkin stuck to a window. Like that's about it. 
Yeah. You know, little, little jack-o'-lantern thing. And we're not the telling... grass is fucking green. We're not telling you to get <laughs> Rob Zombie levels here where there's a pumpkin in every frame, for fuck's sake. But, you know, these guys wanted to give that fall vibe. I mean, John Carpenter went through great lengths to give that indication that, yeah, this was a fall day. Yeah. They they put some effort into the setting, to the overall feel. Um, even if there were palm trees in the back. <laughs> there, even if there were. Or, or mountains. They're supposed to be in Illinois and they had mountains in the background in the last one. Or is that the next one? No, it's well, I mean, they do in, in both. In both. Yeah. You can see mountains in the background and there's not really mountains in Illinois. Yeah, and then there's <laughs> aspen trees in part six. It's either an aspen or a birch, but everything's green. Fucking flowers are blooming in front of the Carruthers house. And I, don't, I mean, it, it went so far in the other movies. Uh, what was it? Uh, four. The one we just did. Yeah. Where uh, Malik Akkad, mm-hmm. that was his job as a production assistant, was raking up the damn leaves. Right. So it was important I mean, to them. The setting, setting the tone of the film was important to them. If you're in Texas... Like, our grass is fucking burnt by the time he gets October. Yeah, ours is dead, but for a totally different reason. Ours is dead because it hasn't rained in six months. And because it's like 500 degrees here. But that almost took me out of the movie completely. Yeah. The fact that it's supposed to be October and everything's green. Now, I've never been to Illinois in October. (laughs) Yeah, never been to there in October. So, I have no idea what it looks like. Yeah. But it doesn't feel fall. So right. it doesn't really matter what Illinois really looks like. Yeah. What I feel like it should look like, what the audience thinks it should look like with the, you know, the leaves have turned colors and all this. I don't know. It, it puts you in that mood and this just doesn't. Yeah. They could have even, I mean, is I don't, I don't know what kind of budget they had. I'm sure you do, but um, they could even went as far as just putting a filter over, oh, you I know. I know what the budget was, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> and the other thing that kind of killed me and you get it. Really through the whole movie. You know some movies will start off really bright and as the tone of the movie changes as you go, the colors change, like everything gets more drab or they put filters on mm-hmm. to tone it down. They really didn't do it in this one. Yeah. You get, it gets darker. The lighting gets darker because it's night. Mm-hmm. But you still get bright pops of color here and there. This one, the color in the beginning, I don't know. It's not consistent get... with a, it's not consistent with a Halloween film. If you're going to get a bright color, it's fucking orange. That's what you get in a Halloween film. It's like... A couple getting down with the get down. You gotta set the mood, okay? <laughs> you gotta you gotta prepare us for this shit. We're not to that part yet. <laughs> I'm just saying, use a filter if if nothing else. You don't you don't wanna go through the trouble of flying in leaves or painting a bunch of gourds and, and squash. At least fucking change the, the color scheme. Do something. Yeah. Warm, act act like up, you give a shit. Warm it up a little bit or cool it, however that shit works. Yeah. Do something to make it not look like, I don't know, let's go to the beach TV commercial or something. I mean, I, 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 I realize just, I'm, I'm going to contradict what we just said where I said, I like some real life in our horror movies. I do. But as far as setting goes, no, we don't want fucking real life. <laughs> I want real life jokes. I don't want real life colors. Yes. Like in a horror movie, if you're going to get a super bright color, it should be significant. Maybe that's a Lynch thing, right? When a color really stands out, it's because it means something. Exactly. Like the color blue in his movies. Typically in horror movies, your really bright color is red. Right. Because it's blood. Right. I mean, I'll give you a... I'm not saying that they have to go that route because Halloween is pretty notorious for not showing as much blood as the others. Right. And I'm okay with that because really sometimes what you don't see is scarier. I'll give you a weird for instance here. Like... you're watching Harry Potter movies, for example. Absolutely. You watch the beginning credits of... You start in Florida the and, sorcerers. You in, and you end up in Portland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you start out with the Sorcerer's Stone where the title card is very cheery and we're going into fantasy, guys. This is what's happening. And by the time you get to fucking Prisoner of Azkaban, that shit's all fucking grayed out. Like, you're like, oh shit, what are we about to get into here? Looks like you the know? set of Twilight. <laughs> it's like, but you see what but I mean. Wizards. I know what you mean. <laughs> 
Yeah, the, the, as the as the mood of it changes, so does the color. Of the yes, mood. yes. And it's just another one where this guy just didn't give a shit. Right. I think he was a lot of style over substance. So in a different movie... What style? In a different what movie... What the fuck? He ain't got no style. <laughs> in a different movie, it probably would have worked. But it's, it's, like, it's like number three. You put the Halloween name on it, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So... <laughs> Go ahead. So... We then see that Max is startled by something in the bushes because, good boy. (laughs) Because nobody ever listens to the damn dog. Right. They don't listen to the dog and they don't listen to kids. He's a good boy. You listen. I mean, if our fucking dog was going off, well, okay. I might think that it was barking at a lizard. No. (laughs) To be fair. Hella's our big dog and she doesn't bark. If she was going off in the backyard, I'm going to get the gun and go out there and find out what's going on. Right. Because she's not barking for no reason. Exactly. I trust the dog. Yeah. But our little two, they'll bark at the wind. They bark at themselves. But even though he's giving this alert, Rachel drags him inside the house. We get a POV shot, so at least they got that part fucking right, of Michael obviously watching behind said bushes. We cut to some peppy 80s music <laughs> as Mac, she, as Rachel feeds Max and undresses. And you got a funny thing about this, right? Well, she doesn't look the way she did in the last one. No. She's not really acting the way she did in the last one. Right. And from what I understand, that was intentional. Uh-huh. I like the way Rachel came off in, in number four. Well, in part four, she... they She was a whole lot closer to Jamie Lee. They went out of their way to make her an every girl wholesome. And despite a couple of babysitting faults, she was, for all intents and purposes, a good girl. Right. And she could she could be anybody. I mean, she literally was the girl next door. Right. But in this one, they went through great pains to make her more uh, what they thought is a, as a, attractive. Well, they just had her dressed differently. And she was obviously, like, her hair was all styled. You know, she She's had a lot, a lot more makeup. Yeah, she had a lot more makeup on, um, wearing much louder clothing I would say I mean it wasn't anything crazy but they had her like in this bright pink top you know that was just it it seemed out of character for her I think that was my problem with it. It's not that she doesn't look nice, and it's not that she can't dress a character up. Yeah. It's that it's, it seems like it's too far from what just happened. And think about what just happened. A year ago, because these are one year apart. Right. She fought off Michael Myers. She fell off a roof and didn't die, because you don't die from falling off a roof <laughs> in Halloween. And her foster sister almost killed her mother. Her foster <laughs> sister almost killed her mother. Yeah. Girl's been through some shit. Yeah. Like, and... I don't know, maybe it's just a guy thing, but I'd be like sitting on couch in my sweats eating bluebell. <laughs> People on Fat Thor. I'm not. I'd be Fat Thor. Yeah. Kind of beer. And And she went totally the opposite direction. That's one thing I will give Rob Zombie because people shit all over his Halloween movies. But when you go to H2 and Lori and Annie have been through the shit, you could fucking tell. Those Those girls girls got PTSD. Yeah. And I felt like that was much more realistic. You don't have something this traumatic happen to you and then just fucking get over. I mean, what the fuck? Lori Strode even faked her death and moved halfway across the country. I mean, that kind of shit affects you. Or did she? (laughs) Right. Depends on what timeline you're going on. Red from Pineapple Express (laughs) says that Josh Hartnett's not her son. (laughs) And I believe him. But I'm just saying, Rachel was treated very differently. I think the character behavior, the swing was too too severe yes between four and five yes as this is going on we cut to jamie in an art class there in the clinic and she's suddenly sensing that something is afoot as loomis watches on through a window i like this shot i don't know why i like this shot it's i know what it is she's coloring on plexiglass and they put the camera behind it yeah it is it, it is cool i but will give neat. them that that is a cool shot that's like uh they did that in breaking bad a lot like that instance where they were tr- that tub went through the ceiling and they had to clean up 
up all the junk and then it showed this shot of them coming from underneath the floor of, of Jesse and Walt wiping down the floor. It's a really neat shot. So I'll give them that, I guess. <laughs> so at this point, Michael is inside the Carruthers house and Max good boy, <laughs> is alerted to this and he starts barking really loudly, which Rachel, who's showering now, tells him to be quiet. Jamie, we see that Jamie is drawing a picture of Ma uh, Max's teeth, his jaws, and a young boy named Billy Hill, he's very concerned and he tries to find out what's wrong. And Jamie frantically, in mute, of course, tries to, t to say that something is wrong with Max. As he turns around to get help, he, he knocks right into Doom and Gloom Loomis. <laughs> So we cut back to Rachel in the shower and this further goes on to one of the way I feel that they treated her character and the actress wrong is that they have her, I mean, as you would in a shower, obviously, be completely nude, but there was nothing tasteful about it. They showed every inch of that girl down to full frontal and I just went, really? Well, they showed it in the shower curtain. You didn't actually see her. Yeah, you, did, you do. Yeah, really? you saw everything because that was my first thing like, are you serious? Well, shit, we have to watch it again because oh, I, I was taking notes and I missed that part. Don't be a pervert, okay? <laughs> but I agree, it wasn't tasteful. This looked like, even the shower scene, it's like, that's some shit they do in Friday the 13th. Exactly. That's not some shit you do in a Halloween Exa movie. Exactly. I mean... Halloween's got standards. Let Friday the 13th do the TNA you, shit. You could, you could argue that in the original, they do show breasts in it, but it was handled, I felt, very tastefully. I mean, yeah, in Scream, you say, here comes our gratuitous tit shot and everything, but it was still like, they didn't hover on it, right? You know, it's just long enough for see anything you like, and then that was it. You know, they don't stay there. I think the difference is how you feel about it when the shot comes up. In Halloween, anytime they've shown nudity, it's like, this is what's happening when they die. Yes. And then in Friday the 13th, it's more like, we're going to show this girl's boobs so that we can kill her. Yeah. I, you know what I mean? They, they treated like her... like motivations are different or yeah, something. Yeah, they treated know. Rachel like fodder and we, this was a character that we grew to really care about in part four. Well, I they, mean... They, she demanded more money for this one. Like, like we stated before, they put that character through the ringer and we we really empathized with her mm -hmm. and went through everything with her. And you're going to reduce her to some fucking eye candy? Like, yeah. it just doesn't make any but sense. She, she did fight for more money for this because of how they were doing her character. Good. As well she should have. But now her phone is ringing and she runs downstairs and it's Loomis calling to ask if Max is all right and if she's all right. She says they're both fine, but Loomis insists that she goes and checks on Max. So again, uncharacteristically, Rachel, she starts rolling her eyes and like, why? So, okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one that that struck as odd. So in part four, He's a total stranger, runs into him on the street. He's all, come on, let's go. They jump in the car. Mm -hmm. I mean, no questions asked. Clearly she knows who she, who he is. They've been through some shit together. Right. Right. They've been in the trenches. And the first thing she does when he calls is, hey, you need to go do this, is roll her eyes. Yeah. And kind of argue with him a little bit. Yeah. I mean, granted, as you're about to cover, she does go do what he's asking her to do. Right. But that initial, I just don't, I don't, that didn't feel right to me. Yeah. It feels like when he called and said, hey, you know, he's clearly panicked. You can hear it in his voice. Go check on Max. I, yeah. I just really think that the Rachel from part four would have said, okay, give me a minute. Yeah. And gone and done it. Exactly. And again, it's just... He he, the way he had these teens portrayed in this movie, they're shit. They're not, you know. They are Friday the 13th characters. <laughs> I'm serious. That's what they are. Yeah. Especially when we get to Spitz. Oh, God. Don't even get me started on Spitz. You're going to have to talk about him because you took the notes. <laughs> but anyway, Loomis insists once again she go check. So completely unworried. 
Rachel goes to look for him, only to discover he's gone. And then it finally hits her like, oh shit. Well, like the food's (laughs) knocked over, the door's standing open. Yeah. And if it's me, if my door's open and my dog's gone, I'm like, I mean, I've, I've done this, as a matter of fact, several times where I don't care what condition I'm in, if I've got shoes on or not, I'm fucking bolting out the door to go find my baby. So, <laughs> I know you're not, but... <laughs> I would if it was Hella. The other two, eh, they're the kids' dogs. <laughs> so then we get a shot of the shape right behind her, but when she turns around to re-pick up the phone, he's gone. He's so damn polite in this movie. And I know we're going to talk about it later, but Michael, he's just such a fucking gentleman in this movie. <laughs> I don't know. He'll let you out of the car when you want to get out of the car, and he won't kill a girl when she's wearing a bath towel. (laughs) He's fucking awesome, man. So, actually, a little bit worried now, she lets Loomis know that Max is gone, and he orders her to go to the nearest store immediately. So, covered only in her towel, she runs to the neighbor next door. (laughs) Yeah, I don't buy that either. Rachel, in number four, would have gone to a store, because he tells her, go to the store and call the police. I mean, there was a guy standing there, so I guess she thought that he was safe, but we know for a fact that Michael can take out a fucking lot of people. This is a Halloween movie. There's a good (laughs) chance that you go to the neighbor's house, they're dead already. Yeah. Because Michael makes, he'll, he'll cover some ground. Yeah, he'll, he'll take out the whole fucking block before he gets to you. Like, so. especially in 2018. So, I was sitting there, like, watching this going, I said store, bitch! I know, right? <laughs> Pulling after Jesse Pinkman. <laughs> bitch. <laughs> bitch. <laughs> we then come to an arguably annoying scene with some out of the out of place clown musical cues as two cops exit her house to let her know that it is clear. When she asks about Max, we suddenly see Max, of course, being a good boy. He's got something in his mouth. He's been up to no good. Trotting up along the sidewalk to Rachel's obvious embarrassment. But they assure her that it's no problem. Their job, (laughs) Their job is to rescue cats, find dogs, it's their job, and they love it. Yeah, and they're going, they're alternating back and forth, talking. <laughs> yes. This. These cops just irritate the shit out oh of me. Oh my god. And this was Gerard that did this. Yeah. They are his fault. And, so, well, and Alan Howarth, too. What the fuck was with that so music? here's the deal. He conceived them as comic relief, and then he was entertained by the little stand-up shit that they did when they were, <sighs> like, offset. So he just let them do it. And he didn't realize how fucked up it was till he got to editing, and it was too late to do anything about it, so he had Howarth put the music on it, so it would be like a farce uh. of cops who they're always around but never advance the plot or do anything else. Right. And so, and we've already established just but, in the last few minutes, we don't mind humor guys, but this is still a fucking horror film. Not it's not a got, horror comedy. Okay. Not when you got two dumb cops and these these are dumb cops. And I they're mean, playing like fucking carnival music. Yeah, when and they they, walk around. they actually say later, fortunately we're lousy cops. Yeah. It's like, where's Meeker already? Okay, give me fucking Meeker How already. How are these jackholes still on Meeker's force? <laughs> no kidding. You think? I mean he's in this movie and he's still a hard ass in this movie yeah how has he not shot them yeah (laughs) but they make their exit as this ridiculous music cues up again we then cut to jamie and loomis at the clinic on the phone with rachel as she assures jamie that she's perfectly fine and that she'll be back in a couple of days upon hanging up and this, this, I don't know how I feel about this scene because Billy, like, he's got some game. For as young as they are, what, like nine years old, he, his game is, is strong, <laughs> okay? So he's trying to comfort Jamie, but at this point, she's upset. She's not having it. She's like, like fuck out of here, dude. And so Loomis is like, we need to let her sleep. She needs to rest. Let's go. And he kind of grabs Billy to take him out of the door. <laughs> 
this always cracks me up. Billy just jerks <laughs> jerks away from him like Get off me, man. Like the fuck off me, dude. <laughs> and leaves. Loomis then clearly exasperated and annoyed with Jamie, begs him to tell him I'm sorry, yeah. Begs him to tell him what she knows. Begs her. Begs her. Him. I'm sorry, I can't buh. <laughs> So do you notice how much more aggressive he is in this movie with Jamie than he was in the in the, the previous entry? Yes. They just felt out of character. Yes. I don't I don't like how they played that. It gets worse a little later, which is where I have it in my notes. Yeah. Um but right here you you definitely get the beginnings where you can see that he's his character is not himself. And you could chalk that up to well, Loomis has cracked himself. We we know that. We know that. We've seen throughout the movies that as the longer he is on this case, the more mentally cracked he becomes himself a little unhinged but this is a child yeah and fun fact so you know when in this movie when he talks to danielle you notice he gets her to jamie how he gets really really close to her Mm -hmm. so well you were watching it i don't remember what the documentary was it was like this four hour long thing about the making of halloween and she said that she'd always wondered what the smell on his breath was and then as an adult she figured it out as bourbon Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i guess he was uh he was all the way up in her grill in this movie for sure he gets close enough to camera that you can see his scars are portrayed in a third way <laughs> because guys this was something and we we regret it but this was something we meant to bring up in our last episode throughout the making of four this burn makeup that donald pleasance had on his face to indicate or to acknowledge what had happened to him at the end of part two that makeup was fucking all over the place like <laughs> well so the one that looks like a fried egg on his face <laughs> apparently I, i'm not the only one that thought that he was watching the dailies with his girlfriend mm-hmm. and she pointed out she's like donald you got an egg on your face and it pissed him off so he went to the makeup department he's like you gotta fucking change it yeah so they did but they'd already shot some scenes and of course they can't edit like whoever did the editing on one and two they should have just kept them because it ain't the same guy on four five and six fucked it all up and that's re- they didn't reshoot any of the scenes so yeah. his makeup changes from scene to scene the scar does yeah and four and this one i feel like it travels more and up it moves his face. up and down the side of his face <laughs> in this one yeah there was also i think there were some scenes in part four where it looked like he had this weird scar along well, the top of his the top of his head. Sometimes it was a scar. Sometimes it was a, a fresh wound because yeah. it was like it was still weeping uh, blood a little bit. Yeah. And in this one, there's no scar at all. Yeah. Oh, these guys. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we go back to Rachel getting dressed now, and <laughs> this is another scene that cracks me up. And I'm not going to say that girls don't do this because we do, but she's going through and she looks way. I mean, she must be in the best mood ever because she looks way too happy. To be picking out her outfit of the day because she looks at this one sweater and she's like, yes. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, just whatever. It doesn't make me look the most fat this day. But we get this shot of her like checking herself out in the mirror with her sweater. But then she turns around to look at her bare ass. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, <laughs> that was a choice. Well, look, we know you do that. Hey, I got a great ass. But okay. But you don't do it on camera. <laughs> think. No. <laughs> but anyway, Max starts barking again and Rachel goes back to check on him and hears something shatter. Now properly scared, she enters her bedroom to see it's a shattered picture frame with Jamie's photo in it and blood. As Rachel looks up, she is attacked by Michael with a pair of scissors stabbing her in the chest. And then we see Jamie convulsing again. Now I thought this was a strange choice also because he kills her here 
here. Mm-hmm. And he does stab her in the chest, but it looks more like it's in the collarbone he stabbed area. Her, yeah, kind of in the armpit. Way off to the side. Yeah. Well, originally, the way they wrote the script, he was going to shove the scissors down her throat. Right. But she refused to do that. Yeah, she thought it was too indignified for her she character. Was, she was already pissed and had demanded more money because they were going to kill her off so soon. Yeah. But yeah, when it came time for them to stick scissors down her throat, she refused to do it. Right. So then we cut to Loomis now at Haddonfield PD, talking with returning character Sheriff Meeker, once again played by Bo Starr, erratically begging for his assistance once again. But Meeker obviously fed up with Loomis's antics at this point, rebuffs him. Loomis reminds him of the murders the year prior, including his own daughter, and he very angrily asks, how could he forget? When we get our now, you know, our now famous Loomis monologues because there's got to be at least one in every movie Mm -hmm. but as much as I don't like this movie I love this monologue that he gives and he says you never saw his eyes you never saw that nothing no expression blank my memory goes back 12 years to the night when I offered my I prayed that he would burn in hell but in my heart I knew that hell wouldn't have him that's just fucking great some deep shit. That's a good fucking, that's a good fucking line. (laughs) And I mean, just classic. And as he's doing this, he's showing Meeker his scarred hand. A police officer walks in just then to inform Meeker that he is needed at the cemetery and Loomis bolts into action. We then go to Tina arriving at Rachel's house with Michael still inside. She searches for Rachel but is unable to find her. She goes up to Rachel's room to the conclusion that she must have decided to leave for the weekend with her parents. As she sits down in Rachel's bed, she discovers the broken frame now with the photo of Jamie missing. So I got this part confused because for fucking years, I thought she was sitting there like leaning toward the mirror looking at herself. <laughs> and I'm like, the fuck is you doing, dude? Well, so this character that wouldn't be too far out of character. <laughs> but only recently did I discover she noticed the broken picture frame. Yeah. I just didn't. So I'm an asshole. <laughs> so at this point, I don't like Tina for the final girl. Yeah. And at this point, you don't know if she's going to be or not. You just she's know still that she's already the... outlived Rachel, who should have been. Yeah, she's still not our final girl, though. I mean, effectively, Jamie still is. Maybe. You don't know later when we talk about it. You, it's never clear as to whether or not she dies. But clearly, she's going to... She's friends with Jamie. Rachel's out of the picture, so it, it stands to reason that Tina's going to move in. She's the only other adult female character in the movie, right? Yeah. Outside of the nurse. And hospital staff is never going to be... They're never going to make it to the end. Right. I just didn't think she fit at all. And it's not that she couldn't be a heroic character in something else, but not in this type of movie. Yeah. And I mean, I I can sympathize with Wendy Kaplan, okay? I know you mentioned her last name as something else um, when you were giving our details. She was credited as something else. Yeah. But I know that she had big shoes to fill, taking over for Rachel's character. And I do believe that she probably did her best with what she had, because you can't do anything about a script. You get paid to do what people tell you to do. No, so clearly this is the performance she cranked out, and Gerard didn't, didn't offer do anything to, to correct it or say, hey, do this differently. Yeah. If anything, um, he may have encouraged this. So, so I'm sure it's not all her fault. I just... I, I'm, I'm sure you guys are sick to death of hearing about our kids already. But I do get it, okay? Kids are obnoxious. They're disrespectful. They're fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> as Sometimes. I'm sure, as I'm sure we were ourselves. But I don't know. I I feel like as a director, he could have said, "Yo, like dial it back just a little bit, okay? You don't have to be so in everybody's face." Well, that's the thing about a movie. They're supposed to be acting, so they don't have to <laughs> act like the children that they are. They're supposed <laughs> to be acting like something else, right? Like Jamie, Daniel Harris is 
How old? 11? Yeah, something like that. She acts more grown up than Tina does. Right. And I get that. That's real life. But in a movie, when you're acting... Well, our our teenagers in uh, previous films, and I would say, I would argue all the way up to 2018, those kids are still pretty subdued. They're not, you know, nobody's just overtly obnoxious. And, you know, so, like I said, I do feel for her as an actress that she did the best she could with what she had. But somebody needed to be there to be like, okay, dial it back. A little bit. I agree. She's then startled by the doorbell. So she blows off this odd occurrence and runs downstairs to open the door only for no one to be outside. Suddenly, she's startled from behind by a friend of hers named Sammy. They muse about being excited that Rachel's house is themselves for the week, to, is all to themselves for the weekend, and then they, they leave. Now, I just want to point out that at the beginning of the scene, when Tina first showed up, she told Max that she'd get him some water. And then she left without giving him any fucking water. She left that poor dog out there with <laughs> nothing. No, we're not in Texas, but still. (laughs) Dogs get thirsty. I know. We go back to the clinic with those girls, or they act like they're headed toward the clinic anyway, and... They have some very uninteresting girl talk about Sammy losing her virginity to her boyfriend Spitz. As they near the clinic, Tina's boyfriend speeds up in a black Camaro and we can see that Sammy doesn't care for him. Again, who cares? (laughs) Tina blows off seeing Jamie, which annoyed me to no end. And as Jamie awakens to look out her window, she sees Michael and begins to try to uh, escape him. She starts running to the basement of the clinic and we see that someone is now in pursuit of her but when when she's found we see that it's only a gardener or caretaker or a maintenance guy or something yeah her nurse then finds them and and takes her back to her room a few minutes later and this is where we had already kind of touched on a little bit but a few minutes later Loomis comes in once again begging her for her help only this time he's getting pretty damn aggressive he's practically crawled up on the bed <laughs> like he's he's like shaking her by the feet and he's knocking over her bed tray and he's like grabbing her by the shoulders and shaking her more or less and he informs her that at the cemetery someone stole the coffin of a nine-year-old girl and he starts yelling at her then asking what does she think Michael's going to do with that? Why are you protecting him? Yeah when thankfully and mercifully Jamie's nurse then begs Loomis to leave her alone. See, I don't buy that. I think any nurse would have just tossed his ass out. Right. Like, okay, you need to leave. Like, got him by the ear and led him out the door. Like, I'm about to call security on your ass. Yeah. I just, I don't, and she was such a sweet lady. Yeah, she was. But just to beg him to leave? Nah, I don't think so. A nurse ain't gonna put up with that shit. Right. And then a very mean line, Loomis tells her that tears won't get her anywhere. What a dick. I mean... <laughs> I, I get that, and I'm sorry, I'm not including you in this, but I get that sometimes girls or women cry and men are like, oh God, here come the waterworks again. But she's nine, you know? Like, there's a difference between a little girl getting pissed off and crying because you won't give her her way or something like that. But it's entirely different for this poor little girl to be traumatized and just not know how to properly express her frustration and fear by doing anything else. But Loomis tells her that there's a reason he has this power over her. We then go into full-on weirdness as a bus pulls into downtown Haddonfield. As the bus door opens, we get a shot of some black boots, all fancy, with silver toes. He scares a dog 
and a child with kicked his presence. <clears throat> he kicked the dog. He kicked the dog. Fucker. Asshole. <laughs> yeah. So Dominique was asked to explain the man in black character, uh, Gerard. Well, it's not the good kind from the Dark Tower. <laughs> it ain't Johnny Cash. So... So he actually blamed it on a cod. Uh, he said that he, during filming, he told him he wanted to add an additional hook so they'd have another sequel. Mm-hmm. Basically give him material to go on with. So Gerard said that he created the character without knowing his origin, created on the fly, per se, and considered him a soul brother to Michael who came from afar to get him. Ugh. He, he claims, I was conscious enough to give freedom of interpretation to the next team of creators as to who he really is. I was attentive not to lock them in a too tight position so they could play that card as they wished. I'm the set, I found the idea of the mark, the thorn tattoo, to link him to Michael and drew on them and on the wall my own rune. Oh, for fuck's sake. You know what this sounds like to me? Like he did something and then said, well, it's their problem now. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> I don't doubt that Akkad asked him to, you know, come up with something that we can continue with after. And he was like, oh, uh, okay. Which in one of the things we watched, didn't Daniel Harris say that there was some dude that used to show up and watch him film when he was wearing like a slicker and a hat? And she thought oh, I that's don't where remember it came that. From. Yeah. But yeah, even uh, Don Shanks that plays Michael said that he actually played the man in black on several Mm -hmm. of those scenes and that even the writers didn't know what the hell that guy was doing there or who he was. That's just, that just really seems like irresponsible writing. They just wrote some shit in there. Like, and the fact that he just like made the rune up, at least if they'd left the original opening where Dr. Death draws the rune on him, it would have made sense. I already take issue with a lot of this movie's runtime just because it felt like there was there were several scenes that it seemed like their sole purpose was just to pad the runtime. Yeah. Like some of the some of the chase sequences or stalking goes on for so damn long. It was like, hey, you know what it'd look cool? What if we did this? Whether or not it really matters to the story or not it'll look cool so let's do this yeah it didn't it didn't uh, feel like they were building suspense it felt felt like okay we've got 90 minutes to fill what can we do we're just gonna put some bullshit in there yeah and did you notice when the man in black goes walking by he jingles when he walks <laughs> yeah i knew you were gonna bring this up <laughs> like he's wearing spurs okay he's not wearing spurs those are that's spur jingle you hear yeah when he's walking and that fucker's not wearing any yeah and let me tell you something. If you're wearing boots like that, you're going to put spurs on them anyway. You're just not. <laughs> Who wears silver tip fucking boots? Uh, didn't J.P. Monroe from Halloween 3 have silver okay. tipped boots? So what? On, on, so only cocksuckers wear, wear silver tip boots. <laughs> we yeah. apologize in advance if you wear silver tipped boots. <laughs> I've never seen any in, in my life. Outside ne- of film, I, yeah. Listen. I've been around a shitload of cowboys. I've never seen any of them wearing silver yeah. tip boots. I've seen a lot of them wearing spurs. That's how I know what the sound meant, what it, what it sounds like. And it shows every scene. Every scene you see this guy walking. Uh, he, he's the walking dude. He and jingle he's, jangles. And he's making spur jingle sounds. Okay. I just want to point out. You just took offense to that. He I'm is sorry. not, in fact, the walking dude. Okay. <laughs> He's not that man in black, but I don't know why. It just bugged the hell out of me that they included that jingle everywhere he went, and he's not wearing spurs. I guess you can blame Alan Howarth for that. We then cut- I do. I do blame <laughs> Alan Howarth. I blame him for the stupid clown cop music, too. <laughs> we then cut to Loomis inside the Myers house. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So... <sighs> I'm sorry, guys. I don't like this movie. I don't. I'll still watch it, but I don't like this movie. And one of the most mortal sins they could have had was the fact that they didn't use anything that remotely looked like the fucking Myers house. Okay. So according to Gerard, the neighborhoods in Salt Lake City don't look like the neighborhoods in Illinois. Well, duh. But the original wasn't filmed in Illinois, was it? No, it was filmed in Pasadena. So the Pasadena neighborhoods look like the ones in Illinois? (laughs) 
at the end of the day, he picked that house because it was bigger, because he had a lot of fun shit that he wanted to do, and he needed a bigger house. That was it. That was his explanation. Yeah, the thing I watched, it was basically like, well, it's my movie, and this is what I want. Like, yeah. okay, so just fuck us then. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. He needed a house big enough, because he had de- he designed the scenes mm-hmm. without the set, without the I house. I get it. I get it. And so since he'd already planned that shit out, he needed a house big enough to do like a 20-minute showdown at the end. Yeah, I get it. You, It's probably not economical for you to go and use that same exact house. I get it. But at least find one that's similar enough. For fuck's sake, in Pet Cemetery, the house that they wanted, they just built facing over an existing house. You can create that shit. Well, and what Friday the 13th was that we were just watching? It was Crystal Lake Memories. Mm-hmm. Which one was it where they didn't have the house they wanted, so they just built one? Yeah. And it wasn't like a whole house. They built like one floor or some shit like that. Yeah. Well, hell, in, my, in Halloween 4, they built one floor of a house for the rooftop fight. I mean, you have movies now like Midsummer that they go and they just build a fucking village. Like, there's nothing there. I mean, you can create anything you want to create. And again, I don't know what budget this had, but... Do you want to? Do you want to know? <laughs> I've got it here. <laughs> what? Now let me look it up. Anyway, but it just it just seems like it was lazy. That's all. It, it was lazy filmmaking. They could have picked any house. Fuck, they could have put the facade for the Myers house on a warehouse. That's what I'm saying. Like, they could have because done that. Because it's not that. like they're shooting the shit in the backyard. And the house is blue. I, it's like I this weird don't... blue purple color and it's like... There's all these other things that they could have done other than that. Instead, they set it up in a fucking gothic mansion. Yeah, like, like okay, I realize in part six that house was green, but you get the idea that they just painted it because it still looked similar. I'm not going to say it looked exactly like it, but it still looked similar enough to the original house. You could sell me on a color change on the outside if it has new inhabitants. Yeah. If, mm-hmm. if new people have moved in and... It's, it's reasonable to think that the people that moved in changed the house color. Throw that in a documentary somewhere. And even if you just didn't give a shit what color it was, I'm going to buy it when you say, well, the people that moved in painted the house. Okay, I'm good. Right. I, I look at it and I go, yeah, it's the same house. Same house, new paint. But give me a house like that. It was. It would be like if in. It just felt like a the, slap in the, the face. That's all I'm saying. On Elm Street if they totally changed Nancy's house. Yeah. Which I don't know if her house was even in the fifth one. I don't know what the fifth one is. It doesn't matter. The dream child and no, because at that point we are with the Alice character. Yeah. But like if all of a sudden they just changed it. But. Yes, in in every dream sequence where um, Nancy's house was going to get brought up, it was the same fucking house. And if it wasn't the same house, they sure, by God, made it look like the original fucking house. They convinced me. Yeah, like, fuck, even if they were just using miniatures, they made it look identical to that house. Like, again, they fucking tried. Yeah, they spent too much money on those fucking boots with no spurs on them. (laughs) They didn't have enough money to build a house after that. So Loomis is looking for Michael in the house, gun in hand, and we see the man in black is also there unbeknownst to Loomis. He is carrying a big bag, like almost looks like a medical bag or, or duffel bag or something with him. And we see that he has a variation of the same thorn tattoo. This one, it has the thorn just like Michael, but it's also got like two dots next to you it. You think Dr. Death put it on him too? <laughs> I don't fucking know. But we also see in the Myers house that that same thorn symbol is painted up on the walls in... Uh... Well, of course it is. Gerard put it there. <laughs> right. And Loomis is continuing to skulk around the house looking in the basement and we get what is an obvious shot to this laundry chute upstairs and Loomis notices it at first and then once he's in the basement, he finds the end of that laundry chute. So as an audience, they want us to know that fucking shoot is oh, there. Oh, and he tries the handle and it doesn't open. Right. So clearly um, that's coming up again. But when he doesn't, uh, but when he does open it, there we get a 
a jump scare because there's a possum that comes falling out of there. And uh, Loomis kind of chuckles to himself a little bit. We cut back to the girls about town and shopping and Mike basically making love to, um, sorry, wiping down his car. That dude should have been on my strange addiction <laughs> yeah. for the way he was That was the that first car. thing I fucking thought of too. <laughs> like he was he was having a good like, time. That tailpipe be looking pretty good. <laughs> So they're at a beer store, pulled up in front of a beer store, where we finally meet the character of Spitz, which is Sammy's boyfriend. And he and Mikey are basically conspiring to steal beer from the store when Spitz makes the grave mistake of touching the Camaro, to which Mike threatens him with his life. Spitz looks unimpressed. (laughs) That's kind of... I didn't know what to do with this, but he basically is like, I'm going to kill you or whatever if you touch my fucking car. And Spitz was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> but Mike is supposed to be an intimidating character and Spitz just looks unfucking bothered he by him. He doesn't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, well, all right. <laughs> you get the impression that this is Mike or Mikey. They call him yeah. both. Yeah. This is his normal asshole behavior all the time. And can I say, why not call him something else? Why do you have to have a movie where your antagonist is named Michael and then have another character named Michael? Maybe they thought it was going to be clever. Maybe it, they went back and they went, there's never been another character named Mike <laughs> in a Halloween movie. Well, she calls him Michael heart. too. So. Michael, Mike, Mikey. Let's have a first in this movie. Right. Anyway, so Tina tells Mike, she, she goes in and she breaks that up and she tells him to pick her up at eight o'clock and we see Mike pull around to the back of the beer store and pull in and, and uh, Spitz loads him down with beer. So they act like it's some kind of secret, right? Clearly Spitz is helping him steal this beer. Yeah. Could you be more obvious about like he pulls sideways across the road and then very loudly back in. Could he be in. any more obvious? <laughs> I promise we'll stop making friends references. No, I don't. I don't well, promise that. That's not how I intended it. That's just how you <laughs> took it. A ghost. A ghost. But yeah. So we see Mike then uh, sitting in his car admiring himself, which, okay. And then they do this thing that I always fucking hate in movies where guys start picking at their face. He was getting a pimple. Yeah, so gross. Like, ugh. Anyway, we see a small rake then suddenly come banging down on his trunk lid and scratching it to hell. Thank God. I feel bad for the car, don't get me wrong. Oh, London. When we were watching this with London, I thought she was going to cry. Did she cry? (laughs) Was she crying? Yeah, she was very upset by that. (laughs) It's a nice car. Yeah. Which they said that that car was haunted. I guess they had rented it or something and the previous owner, the, the or maybe they bought it from the parents, but their daughter had committed suicide in the car. And even the stuntman said that there was something odd about that car. So they had a haunted car (laughs) on the set of Halloween 5. I like horror movies, but I don't buy into actual supernatural stuff, which is strange. Me coming from a Latina background, you know, we're all about (laughs) our supernatural business. But (laughs) at this point in the movie, the way everything's been going... If they decided, you know what, this ain't working, fuck it, we're going to change it halfway through into Christine Part 2, I would have been okay with that transition. Well, that's kind of like, we were watching uh, Friday the 13th of New Blood the other day, and we were talking about, okay, in a Friday the 13th movie, you don't need to add fucking Carrie to it. It's supernatural enough just having a a serial killer that won't die. Okay, so I just want to point out (laughs) that last week or the week before, when I was bagging on the fact that they put a psychic in a fucking Friday the 13th movie, you defended. I don't recall that. I do. I don't recall that. That might have been London because, oh, because she and Aiden were saying that that was their favorite. Oh, God, I hate that. (laughs) 
It's I, stupid. It's a stupid premise. I uh, Yeah. I mean, I can find merit in that movie still. Like I said, it's got one of my favorite kills of all time in it. But it was still something that wasn't needed. So same thing with this movie. There's just a lot of elements that aren't necessary for it. Like, we've already got the most badass killer of all time. Like, what more do you want? Anyway. They, just, they make stupid choices <laughs> for movies sometimes. Mike is obviously outraged and jumps out of the car ready to beat his ass. Like, that's going to happen. Which is exactly what does happen because as soon as he tries to attempt a punch, the shape grabs him by the throat and buries the rake into his face. Yeah, and him him twitching on the ground was supposed to be a lot longer. Mm-hmm. They made a ton of cuts to this movie on the kills to avoid an X rating. Apparently, they they were getting an X from the word go, and they cut a whole bunch of shit out to avoid that to get it down to an R. And this kill was one of them that they cut short. Back at the clinic, we see the children readying for a costume pageant. We see Billy gifting Jamie with some flowers in a sweet ass gold ID bracelet with his name Billy Hill on it. So that's the gift that keeps on giving. You give your girlfriend your life alert bracelet. <laughs> but like I said, the boy's got game for as small as Hope he that is. Hope doesn't have medication <laughs> on the back of it because if, <laughs> if they start giving her his meds, they could have a problem. But it is super sweet because we have his little his little stutter and all that. And but stutter not, he's like yeah. <laughs> He's trying. <laughs> yeah. But Jamie seems a little aloof to this. It's so funny. He's been laying it on thick pretty much this whole movie. And Jamie always comes across as like, okay. <laughs> like, calm down. As the pageant goes underway, we with Loomis in uh, attendance, we are back at the Carruthers house. And we see <laughs> the spur jangling. Man in black wearing the... Watching the house from the shadows. The Camaro that's supposed to be Mike shows up to pick up Tina. She gets to the car and we see Michael. But this time in a different mask. And this is a brute mask that Tina had gifted him earlier at the beer store. After a few beats, he finally lets her into the car. There's an awkward silence and this is just an awkward scene in general. It is. Um, it's... It's Tina, it's a Gina. Tina tries to break the silence with some flat dialogue. And I, I, I don't know, the way this line was read, but she's like, well, I can't resist your new look. <laughs> I just thought it was so weird. Like the look on her face and it was just... So, the whole thing was cringe. Okay, but I liked the way Don Shanks played this. You see his eyes cut over. It, it okay. And the way he's gripping the steering wheel. And to all be I could fair, hear was, it's was, what's her name? Betsy Palmer? Killer. <laughs> Killer. That's, that's what I could hear in my head. <laughs> Killer. Now, Killer, now's mommy. the time. Yeah, and the, the maid costume she's wearing. Oh, yeah, which yeah. Which, for one, they were supposed to be switched. She was supposed to wear the devil costume that Sam, Sam ends up in. Yeah. And vice versa. But Gerard didn't want the heroine dressed like the devil right so they switched it and i get that fair point they've mm-hmm. done that in other ones where you know the good girl or the the final girl or whatever is dressed differently than the rest of them yeah but, but why does a french maid outfit need a fucking vampire cape on <laughs> i don't know i couldn't figure that out myself <laughs> Like and, and that's the thing he chose to focus on. That's the thing he wanted to get right. Out of all the opportunities in this movie that he had, or he could have invested that effort to make it better, that's where he spent it. <laughs> she gives him an awkward kiss, saying it feels creepy as Michael's gloved hands grip angrily and very tightly on the steering wheel. And yes, I will give you that. He is actually pretty creepy in that scene. I, I was so hoping he'd kill her right there. And I had a question. What color were Mike's eyes, the boyfriend? And what color are Michael's eyes? I think they eyes? were brown. Because she got close enough, she should have been able to tell that that was not her boyfriend. Okay, I just want to point out that because they have had several actors portray Michael, the eye color.
Miller has not been consistent. No, but I'm saying in this movie right here, her boyfriend and Michael, because she gets right up in his face after she kisses him and is looking him dead in the eye. Yeah. We can see his eye. Yeah. So were, was their eye color identical? I think... Because I guarantee if somebody else put on a mask, just because they have blue eyes does not mean that you're going to think they're me. Yeah, yeah. Stupid. It's but stupid. By Maybe the time, he never took his shades off. His future was bright. <laughs> but by the time you get to Halloween H2O, his eyes are blue. They're definitely blue well, in that I'm movie. I'm just in this specific instance. Yeah. No, I'm just saying there, there's literally no consistency with this. As they speed away, Jamie begins to silently scream, falling to the floor, freaking out the pageant goers as Loomis goes to her aid. Because she was standing in front of this, uh, what do you even call that? There was like a ledge. She was just standing in front of the banister at like yeah. the top of the stairs. It was like yeah. a little overhang. Yeah, because the, the pageant goers, they're on the bottom floor. Jamie's up, you know, up a floor. And so it looks like she's going to fall over this Yeah. This banister. Well, there for a second, it almost looked like she was about to throw herself off. Well, I don't know like about... She le- it looked like she leaned towards it with intent. I don't and maybe that's think so. It did to me. Okay. But at any rate, she freaks everybody out because they think she's going to fall off. But she just falls in the floor. But we go back to Tina and Michael in the car, and she is now pissed that he's giving her the silent treatment. She asks him to stop at a nearby gas station for smokes. I mean, shit, I'd need him at this point, too, if I was in her position. But he continues to drive until she demands that he stop. And this part always cracks me up. I said, stop the goddamn car. I want a pack of cigarettes. And isn't he, like, the most polite Michael Myers? Like, not only will he stop, he'll turn around and take you back to a gas station so you he did slam on the brakes, though. <laughs> and then he'll fucking wait outside for you to come back out with your cigarettes. So he slams on the brakes and drives in reverse back to the convenience store. As Jamie is once again convulsing and suddenly, but strained, finally able to speak. And she is trying to describe the gas station. <laughs> that Tina is at. And all they managed to get from this is Big Cookie Woman. All-nighter, Big Cookie Woman. (laughs) She could have been describing something totally different than a gas station. (laughs) Goddamn, I wish my GPS gave me such precise fucking directions. I could get anywhere I wanted to go then. But But they know exactly where the all-nighter Big Cookie Woman is. That's what I was about to say, is that a cop knows exactly where she means, and the cops get there in fucking double time. Like, the cops were messing around. in there like... Man. And they take Tina into custody, but we see that Michael has left. Tina arrives at the clinic and discovers that Jamie is able to speak again, but doesn't stay long in favor of Mike. But Jamie begs and cries for her to stay, and this scene is actually pretty heartbreaking. I mean, if it, if a little girl was sitting there begging and crying to me that hard, I'd fucking stay, you know? Well, especially when your boyfriend just ditched you. The power of boners is not that strong, okay? <laughs> like, I'm sorry. <laughs> but Tina is obviously very upset, and though Loomis tries to stop her, she chastises him for filling Jamie's head with nonsense and leaves anyway. Is this the one where she says, I don't do anything sensible if I can help it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Loomis sends the cops, the dope cops, I might add, from earlier to watch her. But since Tina is abandoned, um, she asks them for a ride to the Tower Farm Party. How how does that shit work? How is he able to give the police orders? Well, yeah, and they even said anything for you, Doc. Yeah. (laughs) But we see that Michael follows behind the squad car and we once again see the man in black sneaking around. Jamie now at this point though has escaped the hospital and we find that Billy has followed her and he tells her that he knows exactly where Tower Farm is. Yeah and apparently in the original script Billy was supposed to be like some kind of BMX bike champion yeah. or some shit and they rode out there on their bikes but they either they didn't film it or they cut it out. I think they did film it and then but, opted to ditch it later. Yeah, originally he was supposed to be a like BMX champion or something. I yeah. Don't know. 
At nine? Well, of course. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they're they're out there, but... <laughs> Anyway, we see the cops noticing Michael driving up to the party, but they don't give a second's thought to it, and they just they opt to play cards in their squad car. Well, they said, orders your orders. That's the statement they made. Like, should we follow them? And they're like, well, orders your orders, and then they just stay there and play cards. Yeah. So they're talking about Loomis's orders. Yeah. Again, he's he's a psychiatrist. <laughs> Bostar would have killed them both and hidden the bodies. <laughs> So then we get our stupid group of teens playing a prank on them, acting like they're going it, to... It spits coming out basically dressed as Michael Myers, and he's pretending to kill Sammy. Well, Tina. Oh, is Tina's it Tina? Tina's the one that stops, and she's like, take me and spare my friend because she's a virgin. Yeah. And he goes, can I have her number? Yeah. Very dumb. Um, but these two dumb cops have got, like, draw down on him. Yeah. And so they they uh, head over to a nearby barn, screaming and cackling like morons. Okay, well, any woman really sleep with a guy that laughs like that? No, not even close. And we'll get more into that in a minute. Ugh. But in the barn, they find some kittens and start chasing them around the barn. And Michael has also made his way inside and is stalking Tina. Though Tina is kind of visibly nervous at this point. She kind of laughs it off. And then she ends up getting jump scared by Spitz and Sammy. And then she decides to go back to the party. So we just had that jump scare. And we're going to go back into another one because then Spitz then and pulls a prank on Sammy. Like, we had, like, three scare pranks there in a row. See, and I don't feel like this was true to Michael Myers' personality. I don't think he would have passed up on killing Tina right there. Because there was several There's times no purpose where he for that. had her alone. Yes. And if he was trying to build suspense, he was wrong. All it built in me was frustration because I'm like, I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for Michael to get her. Yeah. And Michael wasted other... no time in killing the girls in part one. No. When he gets them alone, it's over. And yeah. And he just drags the body off and hides it for you to find later and that's where your jump scare comes from yeah like i said this this feels more like padding the runtime more than suspense i I mean in my opinion no i I agree you're just delaying the inevitable yeah so as spitz is pretending to attack sammy you know we we get that scare there for a minute but then all is forgiven of course, as Jamie and Billy continue in pursuit of them. They decide, of course, it's time to get down with the get down and naturally go at it when suddenly Spitz, thankfully, gets impaled through the back out of the chest with a pitchfork. Yeah. So and this whole that dude's making some weird noises. love scene was fucking cringe as hell. Yeah. Like, I don't need sound effects, yo. If I want a soundtrack, I'll put on some music. I don't need your weird <laughs> moaning and weird sex noises. Yeah. Like, he was, he was making some really off-putting noises. Like, I'm sorry. I would doing. tell you, like, dude, is everything okay? Yeah. What's the problem? You got a kink in it down there? You all right? <laughs> like, and then, so back to actual movie stuff. So when he stabs him through the back at the point where Spitz's body rolls off of Sam, mm-hmm. you can see that he's laying on like an ironing board. Yeah. Or something. You can visibly see it. Mm-hmm. So it kind of goes back to, again, to the, the editing. It just wasn't yeah. up to par. Yeah. Again, it's like we're just trying to get it done so we can cash the check. Right. Sammy, bless her, tries to fight back, like even calling him a son of a bitch, but she is sliced with a scythe for her trouble. When the cops know 
notice that the quality of sound has changed. <laughs> Michael then approaches them. Tina, the, the party's kind of wrapping up at this point and Tina decides to leave, but she doesn't want to leave without her friends. And she goes to the barn just as Jamie and uh, Billy arrive. So Tina goes in and teases them about the lack of boner noises and asks if they're sure if they're doing it right. And I'm sitting there going, okay, so clearly you've never done it at your parents or in-laws house. <laughs> Too much information. And it shows. <laughs> She then comes across one of the kittens and it's now covered in blood. She then sees the bloody scythe and then the bodies of her annoying friends begin to pelt her. <laughs> well, they, they roll out of the hay behind her. Yeah. She runs toward the squad car outside only to see Tweedledee and Tweedledum dead. And she thinks that she spotted Mike in his car. But then as soon as Jamie screams for her, Michael then starts to pr pursue her in the car. He was really chasing her in a car too. Yeah. They said that was a pretty tense scene because it was at night with the headlights and the way she was running through the trees. Yeah. He, well, when he was chasing Tina and when he was uh, chasing Jamie, if either one of them had fallen down, that would have been it. Yeah. So I will give it credit that there was a while where that scene would really stress me out. Not so much with Tina, but with Jamie. I mean, and shit, that was even before I even had kids. That's just like, oh my God, it's a child. Like, oh. like the working conditions for children back then, they didn't give a fuck obviously. Well, but, they treated Jamie pretty well, or Daniel Harris. Yeah. When they did this movie, I mean, apparently they partied all the time and let her go too. Yeah, I feel like now they would have had a smaller person dressed up as her and chased them. Yeah, they, it would have been like Scream where we get 30-year-olds to play 18-year-old high school No, kids. no, no, no. I mean, I mean short, like short in <clears throat> stature. I know what you mean, but yeah, I don't know. It, I think it looks better when you have the actual child, but I could not have been a parent standing there watching Isabel run from a car. Yeah. That would have terrified me. Me. Yeah. He suddenly stops, and when Jamie tries to avert her attention to herself, he then chases her down, too, just missing Billy. That was really close. Tina then tries to chase them down, and Michael ends up wrecking into a tree. So another part of this movie that really illustrates Gerard's lack of experience when he directed this film, because I think this was his first feature, at least, that he filmed in the States. When Don Shanks crashed the car, they had told him, don't get out of the car until the director yells cut. But apparently, Gerard was so impressed with the uh, the severity of the wreck, he forgot to say cut, and the car caught on fire. So th those were actual flames. In an interview with Shanks, he said the fire was actually coming under the firewall when Don Pike, the uh, stunt coordinator, had to tell Gerard to say cut so that Shanks could get out. Ridiculous. And in the original cut, he did hit Billy, but the MPAA made him cut it. That's why mm -hmm. later you see him limping. Okay, got it. Tina then approaches Jamie when the horn stops blaring suddenly, and Michael begins to pursue on foot. So at this point, Jamie is toe up from the flow up and he closes in on on her and Tina jumps out and or jumps on him but he ends up stabbing her repeatedly and she's begging Jamie to run so if the character of Tina had been done better this might have been sad but from what I understand when this movie was viewed they actually had people cheering at Tina's death <laughs> I, you know, I think that's, I didn't feel anything when she died. I didn't cheer. I just didn't care. Yeah. And it, it's tough when you take a, when you have a character that occupies as much screen time as she does and clearly is a major part of the plot for the story. And then when they die, you just, you don't, doesn't matter. 
Yeah. I don't know. And did she die? Mm -hmm. Like, because she was still alive when they left her on the ground. And I think it shows her later on the gurney and she's not covered up. No, but she is dead. Did she die? Yeah. So Billy leads Jamie away from that as she's crying and carrying on. And they run into Loomis. And he finally gets them to safety um, as Tina's body is then found. Jamie's putting an ambulance and Loomis basically asks Jamie, are you ready? You ready to help me now? And Jamie asks him, can you kill him? And he nods, but he has this look on his face like, oh. I don't know, but he does kind of nod like, yeah, I can do it. And she asks him, what do you want me to do? So I got two real questions. The first one, how did Loomis find them in the woods? That's the big one. And how did the cops get there so fast? Again, their response time is unbelievable yeah. in this movie. But more than that, how did Loomis know where she was? They were running around out there in the woods in the dark. Yeah. I mean, did he follow the screams? How did he find Tower Farm to begin with? Is Loomis psychic too? <laughs> I'm sure there's more than one person that knows where Tower Farm is. I mean, Haddonfield's a small town. I know, but how did he know that's where they went. I don't know. I guess Tina had to have mentioned it you at some point. You see what I mean? I just don't, yeah. I don't remember. I didn't remember her saying it. So when he just spontaneously shows up out there in the dark woods, where did he come from? I don't know. I need to check his wrist for a thorn mark too. <laughs> alone, uh, as the ambulance pulls away, alone in the woods and Michael in the shadows, Loomis urges Michael to go to his childhood home. That he and Jamie will be there waiting. So that shot where you can see Michael kind of moving out there in the woods, he wasn't supposed to really be there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Loomis was supposed to be out there basically addressing no one. Right. But he didn't want to play the part by himself. So he actually ran and got Shanks out of his trailer in the middle of the night to come stand in the woods in the cold and the dark with him. Yeah, he, he said something like, I just want to know that you're there. So that he would be talking to someone. Yeah. Back at the Myers house, Jamie replays Judith brushing her hair at the vanity. And this has been a big problem that I've had throughout the series of Halloween. We see Michael's perspective as he kills Judith, sure. But no one else would fucking know those details. There's two people that knew how that happened. Judith, who is dead, and Michael, who ain't talking. Exactly. But everybody up to fucking, I mean... I would even I say... I bet Tom Atkins knew what happened. <laughs> I would say even up to 2018, somehow everyone knows the details of Judith's death. Yeah, because they recount that whole scenario in, in the 2018 version. Yeah. I remember specifically them talking about it in, um, in Halloween detail. Resurrection. Yeah. It's like, how would you guys fucking know that? But anyway, I digress. As the And so we see that the police squad has surrounded the Myers house. And over the radio, Loomis basically tells them, shut the fuck up, guys. Like <laughs> You don't know they're out there because they're hiding. Yeah. Sort of. But they're all talking over their radios and yeah, Loomis and like... And moving around and making noise. <laughs> yeah. They're, it's the most awful ambush I've ever seen. But yeah, Loomis is telling them to shut up and Meeker's like, okay, calm down, bro. This is my operation. We see a cop has been stationed with Jamie and he gives her praise for being very brave to which she gets this... It always cracks me up. She gets this expression on her face. Like the idea of what... Of being bait has finally just now set in and she's like... Oh, Oh, shit, son. She then gets one of her psychic flashes that Billy is in danger. Loomis informs the cops and they all, all of them dispense to the clinic because they aren't getting a response from the cops that were keeping guard there. Yeah, so according to Don Shanks, there was a whole sequence here where you get to see Michael Myers basically take a SWAT team apart. Yeah. And they filmed it. Mm-hmm. There's an interview that he did with HalloweenMovies.com where he, he actually described the whole scene that they shot and then they, had, then they cut it. So they, they left Tina in and then take something interesting, Michael rip an ass and cut it out. Yeah. They cut it all my favorite bits. <laughs> so then this sting operation obviously looking like a bust because 
Michael must obviously still be at the clinic, Meeker tells Loomis that Jamie needs to get back to the station. But Loomis has other plans. Now that the cops are gone, he knows that Michael's going to show. As the cop with Jamie readies them to leave, Loomis locks them all in the room and Michael does end up showing up. And he kills the only remaining cop still sitting outside and we can hear the carnage over the radio. So I guess this cop in his car was sitting with his thumb on the radio while he's getting killed. Well, they had to do something because that <laughs> scene originally was a lot longer and a lot more graphic with more close-ups on like the glass embedded in his face. Uh-huh. And they cut that too. So then Loomis threatens the cop with a gun, urging him to stay with Jamie. Once Loomis has left the room, the cop then tries to escape with her as Loomis searches in the house for Michael. He does finally end up finding him. He's... <laughs> This is a very weird scene. He's, they're talking, or at least Loomis is talking for a good several seconds there, basically offering Jamie up. And Michael uncharacteristically stands there listening to him, just like holding his knife up and hearing what Loomis has to say. Thought that was very weird. So. I didn't understand that. That's not typical Michael behavior. Yeah. So Loomis even gets as far as almost getting the knife away from him, but then he is slashed across the stomach and Michael puts Loomis's head through a window and then throws him down a banister or through a banister. So he actually put Donald Pleasance through that window. Yeah. And he wanted to do the banister scene too, but they wouldn't let him. Yeah. The cops, the cop upstairs with Jamie, he tries to send an emergency ladder through the window for he and Jamie to make their escape, but Michael breaks through the door. The cop shoots him several times times to no avail and Michael ends up hanging this cop with the emergency ladder out through the window and now Jamie is going again trying to hide and she gets to this laundry chute that we brought up earlier and escapes through there but Michael discovers this pretty quick and she's in there basically praying for her life. She ends up falling through the chute hitting bottom really fucking hard and Michael goes to the basement to try to get her from the other end. He pries the door open and tries to stab at her as she manages to crawl up a little way up the chute. He then takes his knife and stabs repeatedly through the metal of the chute, but she manages to gain some leverage by stepping on the blade and bouncing, kind of bouncing back up to the top of the chute. So that was a real knife. And yeah. she was really in that ventilation duct when they did it. I'm so telling you, they didn't give a fuck. They had to mark on the outside where he could stab and where he couldn't. Yeah. And then they had hers marked on the inside of where she, like, don't put your legs below this point or you'll get but stabbed. But accidents happen. And I I can't imagine, like, there's no way they would do that now. Yeah. No, It I don't just doesn't so. make sense. And the thing that kills me is that one of the selling points of this house, we were talking about the Myers house earlier, was that this house they found had a laundry chute. Yeah. Well, they did shoot this, like, in one night, but they used, like, 30 different sections of of ventilation duct slash laundry chute and some of it was laying down so it wasn't even the laundry chute that was in the house again just use the house (laughs) so now that jamie's back upstairs she enters the attic and it is fully adorned with candles and the, the coffin that was brought up earlier with a photo of her behind it she then gets the shit scared out of her when the bodies of max and rachel and a cop pop out and she starts screaming of course giving away her location with so she she ends up getting into the coffin and laying down and as Michael stands above her about to stab him she freezes him in place by 
by saying Uncle Boogeyman and she asks to see his face and for some reason he takes his mask off and when she offers that he looks just like her we see a close-up of his eye with one single tear. So this was Gerard's choice. It was his yeah that was his whole thing. He said it was to humanize him. Michael's not human. Loomis has stated that several times. I know but he thought that if your boogeyman knows pain or love or shows feelings that it makes him more scary to me. Again this was how it affected Gerard. And then he makes the statement that Dr. Loomis tried to reach his emotional side several times in Halloween 5 because he thought he could cure Michael through his feelings. I never got that from Loomis. Well he did he did go on to bring up his rage several times that basically killing Jamie was going to stop the rage. But did he believe it or was he just trying to use that as bait? Yeah I don't know. So in, in any other movie in this one with Michael where Michael and Loomis interact I never get the feeling that he's playing off of Michael's feelings or trying to use Michael's feelings to reach him. Michael is a fucking empty husk a shell of a person he does not emote he doesn't feel anything. That's part of what makes him terrifying. He's a fucking machine. Yes. And He's like the fucking Terminator. Exactly. And, and I just don't understand that humanizing impulse that Gerard had. Like, And I know there's that whole thing about, in, in part two, they introduced that it was Jamie Lee's brother, which was bullshit. Right. In the first one, he picked her because he saw her. Yes. He just said, you, you're it. Yeah. And that's no what relation, makes it so scary. No reason. It was just, it's like, uh, was it the first purge? Why did you come here? Because you were home. You mean the strangers? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Fucking kids in masks standing on the porch. But that, that was scary. Yeah. You know, why us? Because you were home. Yeah. And he did the same thing. Why Why her? Because she was there. Exactly. And that makes it scarier. Yeah. Because at that point, there's nothing you can do to get out of it. Yeah. And this just is total bullshit. Ugh. As Jamie tries to dry his tear, this breaks his trance, causing him to frantically back away. Again, frantically, because he does that. And puts his mask back on. She begins running again and runs into Loomis, who then grabs her, leading her through the house as bait for Michael to come after them. They end up in the living room and as Michael closes in, Loomis drops a chained net over him and shoots him repeatedly with the tranquilizer gun. When did he when did he hang that chain net up? The dude could barely walk. How did yeah. he get a damn chain net? I don't know. Like he's clearly in poor health and mobility is an issue. Yeah. And then tranquilizer darts? Like bullets won't work but this might. <laughs> as he, he then rips a board from a nearby window and just proceeds to beat the brakes off of him screaming die over and over again and then Michael does finally collapse and Loomis then too collapses on top of him appearing to have had a heart attack and died. So he broke Don Shank's nose in this scene. Apparently apparently everybody took turns hitting him. It was like a rubber 2 by 4 with a piece of PVC pipe in the middle and as long as you hit it on the the wider side there was a lot of padding but if you turned it on edge then there wasn't much padding there. Yeah. And he didn't know who if it was Donald Pleasance or one of the others but apparently three or four different guys because Loomis got tired took wax at him with this but I think Loomis got the credit for actually broke his nose and since he broke his nose uh, they had to change the mask so there's going to be scenes where you can see that they visibly have had to cut it out and put another nose on and it was because of the whatever the, the, the I don't say it's a cast but what the other thing for broken nose was to hide it so there's parts in the movie where you can see that they've had to modify the mask but it was because of that mm-hmm. we then come to a close-up with a wacky scene back at Haddonfield PD where Michael is very sillily locked up behind bars it just looks so fucking odd it looks he's like they just told him to go stand in the corner <laughs> yeah 
where Meeker says that the National Guard is coming to escort him to a maximum security facility where he'll stay till he dies, but Jamie knowingly says he'll never die. Meeker orders for her to be taken back to the clinic as Michael sits there playing with the chain like he's bored. (laughs) So we've established that transferring Michael Myers anywhere is a bad idea. Right. But that's the first thing we're going to do when we catch him. Put him (laughs) in another transport bus because that works out. Outside, we see the man in black approaching the police department as Jamie is loaded into a squad car. And I always found this scene really weird too because the cop that they put her in the car with, he's like looking at her really weird and like stroking her hair. It was just very... He's acting weird. It was very odd choice. Did you notice the dialogue when they were walking out? He was arguing with another cop about who was covering whose shift. Yeah. And he was like, I thought you were covering my shift. Yeah. Let's think about how many police officers just died in this movie. (laughs) Right. Is that really what they're still going to be talking about? Right. Yeah. Just then we hear and see an explosion inside the police department and we hear gunfire. The cop leaves Jamie alone, but of course she has to go see what's up and she leaves the car entering the, the department again and discovering everyone inside is dead. So this is including Meeker and I'll get to my thoughts on that in a minute. And as she cries going through this room, she notices that Michael too is also gone and she cries no and we cut to black. The end. <laughs> so I want to bring up that I really felt like Bo Star was underutilized in this movie. He he was a big part of what made, for me, he was a big part of what made part four great. Like what? he was very tough, no-nonsense, badass sheriff. And in here, he was reduced to just a minor character. Yeah, with the amount of screen time they gave him in this, you could have grabbed any bum off the street and put him in a uniform and said, this is the guy. Yeah, yeah. They didn't use him for much in this movie and it was really disappointing. And he was completely in effect. Yeah. So in that last scene I kind of wonder, so did the man in black go full Terminator and slaughter every police officer in that place? Because there's like, what, eight, nine of them on the ground? Yeah. Or did he manage to sneak back to Michael, break him out, and then Michael killed them all on the way out? Well, they do show a shot of him in the flames. It was all very untouchables because he's just there like with his fucking Tommy gun or whatever, (laughs) like fucking blasting at these guys. So I'm assuming he's the one that killed everybody and then broke Michael out. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know really how I feel about this movie. You should probably go first. (laughs) So, again, this was a movie that I grew up with. If... To my recollection, this is actually the first Halloween film I ever saw. Again, it was because my my mom loved horror movies too. And if there was one she liked, she would record it off of HBO or whatever on VHS. And then I would carry these videos off to my room. It was like this and My Bloody Valentine and Alien 3. And I would go watch those. I'm, I'm pretty sure this was the first one I ever saw. For that being your first Halloween, that's really the shittiest one you can start off with. But because of that, I do have a little bit of a soft spot for it. There's definitely some nostalgia there. But the more that I've watched it and studied it and heard the backstory on this, I'm like, oh my God, like this is, this is just awful. And it really, really sucks. And part six doesn't get any better. That, that's the problem is like you you always hope that your next entry is gonna outperform or outdo the last one, at least make a better fucking movie. And this one just 
I know they said that this was this film was considered the beginning of the end. Part four. Part four was considered the beginning. Oh, okay. Of the okay, I was going to say it because I would consider part four being the beginning of the end. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, there didn't need to be anything after part one. That movie is fucking effective. Like, you end on that note, you see, you know, after Loomis has shot Michael out of the house, that his body's gone a couple seconds later. And then suddenly you hear the music and you're going, there's all the various shots of the house and you hear Michael's breathing. It's such an effective scene that, oh my god, he can be anywhere. And that's what you leave with. That's what you take away. God damn, is that an effective ending. Like, it really is. They could have stopped right there. Halloween 3 could have, as much as I love it, it could have been its own thing. That being said, I still really enjoy part 2. And so if I'm going to watch those, I watch those back to back in a double feature, like one long movie. I didn't think Michael needed to come back. This was all, obviously, a ploy on Mustafa Akkad's part to just cast those checks. And I, God rest his soul, I hate how he died, he and his daughter, but he didn't seem like he was, at least in this business, like he was a great person. And you had something to say about that too, right? Well, it's another one of those interview things that you like so much where Gerard was actually asked what it was like working with him. And apparently Akkad used to give him a hard time on set and he told him to stop saying thank you for everything that he got from the crew because you're the boss and the boss doesn't have to thank the people that work for him. And then he went on to say that on one of the first days of the shoot he was telling him the way he saw a specific scene and Gerard wanted to kill the gardener but Akkad didn't like that he said no he's a, he's an old man don't kill him so he explained it and then shot it the way he wanted to anyway and apparently Akkad just filled up his pipe and walked off and he never saw him again on set but he said that he enjoyed Akkad enjoyed pitting the director against the line producer that he liked the fact that they were each defending their cause with him asking for more and the line producer wanting to save more and that it would create and he would create arguments between us he said that it was good for the film and always laughed when he heard of a quarrel between me, Gerard, and Rick Nathanson, the line producer. Yeah. So if that's true, then from a character standpoint, it, it explains a lot about how the Halloween series went. Mm-hmm. Where the first one was sort of a, a passion project and the rest of it was a money grab. Yeah. Because that's, if, if the way his personality is described, that that's some that's a person that doesn't give a shit about people at all. It's it's the money. Yeah. And that's just really unfortunate. And um, it shows in these movies. Yeah. But um, I know I say this every damn time, but if you're a completionist, obviously watch it. Um, If nothing else, just to see the way the series has changed over the years. Some of the choices they made. It's, you know, I said they, they should make one of those really long documentaries like they did about Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th on this one because it to me it has the most drama of any series that there is. So so definitely watch it, of course. Watch it. And if you watch it and you hate it, don't watch it again. But at least watch it once. It's a mixed bag for me, but that's my that's my thing. Go ahead and watch it. Yeah? Yeah. That's your take on it. That's right? my take on it. <sighs> I'm going to have to stick by my guns on this one. You know, I, I said on part four, you're really not going to miss anything if you don't watch it. I really <laughs> feel the same way about this one. I've watch never them. heard anybody say, oh, I just really love the Thorn trilogy. Watch number one. I think number two is worth watching, even though we're not oh, yeah. covering those. Yeah. It still felt like a Halloween movie. Watch Halloween three, but don't expect it to be a Halloween movie. Just expect it to be a pretty cool sci-fi horror weird 80s movie. But four, five, six, H2O, Busta Rhymes, just skip them. Like, honestly, I'd rather watch the zombie movie, the zombie Halloween movies then watch these zombie oh <clears throat> Rob Zombie I was like what zombie Halloween movies <laughs> yeah yeah. Oh, uh, just... you're going to piss so many people off with that. Well, then they really haven't watched part five and paid attention. 
And part six is not better. No. Like this, this whole even with Paul Rudd, all the statements that Gerard made about not tying people's hands, and he didn't want to set him up for for it to go any certain way. He did. He introduced a character. He introduced a mark. Like he, I can only imagine, and we haven't looked to see who the director is for six because I guess that'll be the research we do next. But I can only imagine that he went back and looked at this one and said, "What the fuck did I just get myself into?" Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to do with that shit? Oh, um, it was directed by Joe Chappelle and it was written by Daniel Ferens. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just bad. Clearly, this is, and I, I, yeah, people may not like this. This is a producer who only cares about making money and a director who only cares about getting that check. And this is what you get. Gerard truly, plainly, when you watch this movie, didn't care about the series. He didn't care about anything that came before it. He didn't give a shit about what came after it. He even stated as much in some of these interviews that I found on him. And yeah, I'm going to have to stand by that. If you don't ever watch four, five, and six, you're not missing anything. I mean, if you want to watch them, watch them. When we do our Halloween marathons, we're going to watch them. I'll watch it. But would I recommend it to someone as a good movie? Absolutely not. Watch it because you're a completionist like my wife. <laughs> but don't watch it expecting to see a good movie because that's not what you're going to get. And it's not that it's all bad. I feel like Don Shanks did an okay job as Michael Myers. He's not the best, clearly. Because he's not Nick Castle, but he did okay, mm-hmm. and and he seems like a good dude. For everything we've we've watched, some of the camera work in here was was okay. Mm-hmm. The lighting was good, I and Donald like... Pleasance is always good. He he yeah, made just... some he made some choices, but that know. was not his but fault. Did he make those choices, or did the director and the the person the screenwriter make those right. choices? But Donald Pleasance himself <clears throat> is still always good. The the man always brings it, no matter what he's yeah. given. So I mean, it's not that it's all bad. It's just when you try putting it all together and make it a, a coherent story that I can't say that this is a good movie. Mm-hmm. Just wait till we get to the next one. <laughs> it's got Paul Rudd in if it. If you thought you haven't you haven't gotten quite enough drama yet, wait till we get to that because that movie has multiple cuts. Yeah, and part six is the one that's got a producer's cut, right? Yes. So the more we talk about Halloween movies, the more I'm of the opinion that producers just need to stay the fuck out of movies because I don't necessarily agree with the direction they take them sometimes. Isn't, isn't six the Weinsteins? Yes. Fuck the Weinsteins. <laughs> they sure as hell needed to stay out of it. Right. But yeah, you get let, let the director or the, the screenwriter or whatever, let them have their vision if it's a good one. I think the producers, because for them it is money. They they want to make a good enough movie to make them money, regardless of what it looks like, I think, sometimes. And I think they should stay out of it. Well, I understand, and we'll get into this more next week, but I understand the point they were trying to make where part six had a lot of varying ideas. And so we ended up getting a movie that was not really cohesive. And so what they tried to accomplish with the producer's cut was to add some things that were left out before, reshoot some stuff, and try to make it a story that was easier to follow. Okay, but I've seen them both and I don't like the producer's cut. (laughs) We watched the producer's cut just the other day. Yes, you just hate it because of what they did to Michael. And I don't like it. (laughs) I don't. Yeah. That was the stupidest way to, to deal with Michael I've ever seen. Yeah. I, it just reminds me of that meme I've seen where they put a salt circle around a Tesla and say it's stuck. <laughs> what the fuck? But anyway, guys, we're going to go ahead and say goodbye for this week, but not before I give my content creator shout out of the week. So would like to uh, bring up a group that I am a part of on Facebook called Killer Flicks. And if there is anybody else that I know is that is as obsessed as Dr. Wolfula or 616 that I brought up last week, it is a YouTuber called Drum Dums. And you can find his channel on YouTube.
YouTube. And again, like I said, um, we have a group on Facebook, to which I am a part of, and I've made several great friends in that group called Killer Flicks, where we discuss horror all day, every day. And then we get Free For All Friday, where we can basically talk about whatever the hell we want to. Um, it's a good group, good people. But yeah, check out his channel. He is he is very obsessed with these Halloween films as, as well. He offers different opinions on the series than what most people are used to. So yeah, definitely go look up Drum Dumbs on YouTube. But we're going to wrap it up for this week and we'll see ya. Adios. Bye. Hello, Deadites. Quick reminder that you can find us on the interwebs. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as SpookyMom83 and Travis on Twitter as TravisL80 and find our official page on Instagram and Twitter at Dead and Married. If you have any questions or suggestions for us, email us at deadandmarried at yahoo.com. See ya. Donald Doctor, Loomis? Yeah, I got it mixed up. I'll put it together. <laughs> Sam Loomis, honey. <laughs> uh, the Loomis, Loomis, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it's several Mike, uh, several. Blah. Donald Loomis basically talking to himself. Donald Loomis. I did it again, didn't I? You did it again. Fuck. <laughs> that bald guy. <laughs> Donald Pleasance. Dr. I, Loomis. Just, I'll just call him Loomis. That's Loomis. what I do. It was very, uh, it was, bleh. All clear. Nothing above, nothing below. It's what we're here for. Rescue cat. Fine dogs. That's a job. And we love it.